Meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, our mild-mannered podcasters were bombarded by gamma rays, bitten by radioactive bugs, mutated by toxic waste, irradiated with cosmic rays, born into a world that doesn't understand them. It is February 13th, 2019, otherwise known as New Comic Book Day, and welcome to the Talking Comics Podcast. You're listening to episode number 377. I am your host, Steve Say, and joining me this week are Mr. Bob Ryer. Did you ever get the feeling of deja vu? All the time. For like the last hour and a half, I've had it. (laughs) Sarah Miles is also here. Buongiorno! And... Joining us just because she wanted to be here. Just because so I can. nice. It's <laughs> Jessica Schaefer. Hello. Hello. It's very cozy in this chair we're sharing. Indeed. <laughs> Super snuggly. <laughs> so check it out, people. We actually on this week's show, we have David Pepos and George Santiago Jr. of Spencer and Locke Fame. Joining us for a fantastic interview, informative as hell. I learned a lot of stuff, particularly yes. from from George. Um, both gentlemen were amazing guests. We uh, we loved having them on the show. We encourage you to listen to the interview. It'll happen uh, after lightning rounds and open discussion, and it's a lot of fun. And seriously, Volume Two of Spencer and Locke hits shelves April twenty fourth. Make sure you pre-order it at your local comic shop and go buy volume one if you haven't read it. It's Calvin and Hobbes if they grew up in Sin City. So how could you, what's not to love? Exactly. All right, Bob, uh, you wanted to do a quick shout out to a friend of ours. Why don't you take it away? Yes, really quickly, Jen Soska of the Twisted Twins, Jen and Sylvia Soska had a little bit of a health scare. And things are looking up. She's feeling much better. The post-production on Rabbit is going great guns. And so just want to say, glad you're feeling better, Jen. And hi to Sylvia, too. Oh, I didn't know that she wasn't feeling well. Mm-hmm. Hmm. All, all better. All they looking po- good. They post a lot online. I just, I must have missed that bit. But um, yeah, absolutely. Definitely hope that uh, Jen's feeling better. We had a... A, a little rousing thing about uh, Brian Singer oh, good. getting, getting uh, <laughs> shelved. Well, not they haven't announced it yet, but um, Red Sonia is now on the back burner be, um, with Singer's controversy stuff and whatnot. And I know that uh, Jen and uh, Sylvia are not fans. So I wanted to share that little bit with them. And we loved it. Okay. Let's go with some lightning rounds because we have a lot to do this show. Uh, Sarah, would you like to go first? Whoa, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's not what it said in the notes. Oh, we never. We, it's it's totally random. The just because that's the order on the paper is not the order that it happens. 
Steve Don't likes go changing like, things at 2 a.m., yeah. man. He likes to keep you on your toes. You never really know. So you're always kind of sweaty palmed and like, is it me? <laughs> <laughs> Joey throws up, you know. Yeah, does. Joey. Joey vomits <gasps> right before. <laughs> By the way, uh, we love Joey. We miss Joey. He is off working on shows and uh, he'll be back next week. So definitely, definitely look forward to that. I'm sure he will have stories from the stage. Uh, and we'll find out if he read any comic books. I think he's been really busy, so who knows? <laughs> um, Sarah, are you ready or do you need somebody else to go first? No, no, no. I'm good. I'm good. All right. I'm going to put five minutes on the clock for you and go. Stop me if you've heard this one. Once upon a time. Now, I'm a sucker for a fairy tale. So any book that starts off like this is off to a good opening in my eyes. Oberon number one from Aftershock is no exception. Created by Ryan Parrott, Milos Slatkovich, and Charles Pritchett, this is the story of the King of the Fairies from Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, coincidentally one of my favourite works from the Bard, who seems to have fallen on some hard times. At least, I hope he has, otherwise his apparent plan to kidnap a young girl from modern-day San Francisco is questionable at best. Featuring an anthropomorphized guard frog, unicorns hungering for the taste of human flesh, bargains <laughs> with fairies, and talking books, Oberon number one is a beautiful introduction to Bonnie, her sister Riley, who, by the way, has a touch of the Jessica Schaefer casual goth to her, um, their parents, who are harboring a secret, and the world of the fairies. The art is gorgeous, especially the use of lighting and shade. There are some scenes set in a forest and you can almost feel the warmth of the sun on your face as you pass through the trees. Completely different from Oberon number one is Old Man Quill, part one of 12 from Marvel. In this new series, Ethan Sachs, Robert Gill, Andreas Mosser and VCs Joel Caramanga push us far into the future, where Quill has taken on his father's title and become Emperor of Spartax as well as starting a family. But let's face it, it's not going to go well for him when the first page shows him kissing his wife and hugging his children. Fast forward through some religious shenanigans and a bit of planet-wide genocide, and we get the kind of quill we're used to, drunk, belligerent, and just a touch pathetic. Now, I'm going to spoil this book a little, so you might want to skip ahead for the next 30 seconds or so if you haven't picked it up and are planning on reading it. There's your spoiler alert. Here's the spoiler old people guardians of the galaxy i'm assuming they're supposed to be old anyway because gamora has got like a sensible short haircut and rocket's using a walking stick and making quips about his back this book has its humorous moments often involving drax and his lack of subtlety and it ends on what is a low note for our heroes but is a high point for the book with vibrant art familiar characters and a healthy dollop of the mcu guardian style humor i am in this one for the ride Plus, I had 300 on in the background when I opened the book, which gave me the excuse to shout, this is Spartax, every time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and third from me this week, going in a completely opposite direction, is a particularly dark book, both visually and in tone. Vindication number one is a new image title, but this is no post-apocalyptic tale. This book from Matt Hawkins, M.D. Marie, Carlos Miko, Dama Jr., Tiago Gonzalez, and Troy Pateri is a nightmare tale, but it is one that rings too true in this day and age. Turn Washington is a black man wrongly imprisoned for murder by an all-white jury. Released when new evidence exonerates him, he becomes the target of a corrupt LAPD detective. 
So this opening issue plunges us into a new crime, which is horribly reminiscent of the original murder, and it only fuels this detective's potentially misplaced wrath. It's dark and realistic in both the tone and the art. And this book shows that comics are not just about capes and cowls or swords and sorcery, but can deliver crushing social commentary and often painful truths. And that's my three books, Old Man Quill number one, Vindication number one and Oberon number one, because apparently I only read number ones this week. <laughs> Sometimes that happens. <laughs> no idea what went on. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I read old man quill i enjoyed a lot just as you did sarah it is a, a great setup it is it is heartbreaking it re- it really is but i don't i in my head i don't ever see peter quill settling down no and it, it kind of was like oh he's settled down this will go wrong right exactly and so <laughs> when you get to that final page oh it's really bad isn't it once they they hit yes. home Yes. yes, did not see that coming either. No. Wasn't anticipating that in the slightest. How dare no. you be happy. No. <laughs> Cleverly written, wonderful to look at, uh, really, really a great one. The I want to ask really quickly, have you ever seen the 1968 film version of Midsummer Night's Dream? Yes. The Royal Shakespeare Company. Yes. Cast, get this cast, Helen Mirren, Judy Dench, Diana Rigg, David Warner, and Ian Holm. Jeez. They do yeah. not make them like that anymore. No. I saw that years and years ago. I also went, read Oberon number one and I loved it. I thought that that was right up my alley. If you're really into like high fantasy and story, you know, a, a good, a good, uh, great story. Really set, I think, uh, the perfect tone for the rest of the book because it starts out. Yes. Yeah. It, 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 they did a great job. Like you said, I, you mentioned something quickly about the usage of light in this book. The artist it's that's amazing. on this book, I mean, really, it's stunning how well um, light is used in this book. It's it's phenomenal. It really does. Like when she said it makes you feel warm on your face, she goes into the spoiler. I'm going to spoil it. She goes into <laughs> the other realm and like comes out and it's like this glowing forest with like, you know, just beautiful bursts through the trees. It was it was really stunningly beautiful and, and really well told. I think it sets mm-hmm. it up great. And yes, the casual goth child is in there. That was me as a teenager. I probably had that T-shirt. So... <laughs> What do you mean as a teenager? It's I mean, yeah, I know. I'm still, listen, I like black, okay? <laughs> you're costing me money again, Sarah. Every See? every other week that you're on this podcast, right after we hang up and everything, I'm on my, my iPad opening up Comicsology. <laughs> Oopsie. Yeah. Also, it's there just is... revenge for all the years you were listening to the show. Yes, exactly. <laughs> 100%. 100%. There is... Um, in Oberon number one, there's a couple of scenes where Bonnie, the little girl's got her hood pulled up and it's got like, like donkey ears, ears on it. It's got little ears. And I was like, A, of I love course. the fact that they've given her the bottom ears, but also yes. it's a little bit I kill giants. And I was just like, oh, I need to tell Steve this. Yeah, I'm going to be picking up all three of these. So damn you <laughs> and your words. Well, it's okay because Old Man Quill's only a 12 parter and Vindication, I believe, is a four part miniseries from Aftershock. So. Stop telling started me. picking up uh, Dead Man Logan. Um, I think it's uh, Ed. Bur- it's the team that did. Um, oh, I want to say Nailbiter. Mm. Anyway, um, let's move on because I only know a, a quarter of what I'm talking about right now, and I don't want to <laughs> give the wrong book or the wrong creators. Okay, um, Bob, why don't you regale us with a lightning round? 
Hopefully, totally. All right. I'm going to put five minutes on the clock for you and go. Giant Days, number 47, by John Allison and Max Saren. Colors by Whitney Kogar. Letters by Jim Campbell. It centers around Daisy's attempt at securing a driver's license. And she's so dangerous behind the wheel that she's caused a mass excess of teachers at the driving school. Now, that's not a shock, as Daisy's final pre-testing thought is that her most recent fled instructor would have told her, think of yourself as a two-ton metal death bringer. <laughs> the other story at play is rather charming. Dean Thompson has a new mental wellness animal, a charming little Pomeranian named Perkin, who takes a huge liking to Esther. Now, eventually, these two tales collide, but don't worry, Jess, no animals were harmed in the making of this comic. Well, that's a shock. That seems to be the year of the killing the animal. Yeah, in the book, not so here. I'm God, here you'll love it. The year of making Jess cry. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, as Guardians of the Galaxy number six by Cullen Bunn and guest artist Matteo Buffani is the start of what looks to be a fun and adventure-packed two-issue side trip before the War of the Realms event kicks into gear. Our motley crew is on the run from well everyone as they're all after the Naglafar beacon. Annabelle Riggs tries to talk the Novacord down using her Loki magic special helmet. No avail there. So amazingly, Team Loki saves the day by transporting them to a distant planet. Of course, since it's Loki, things don't go as well as they could. The Asgardians find themselves in the midst of someone else's fight with Yondu's new ravagers over a special set of refugees. From issue one, I really just enjoyed this as a great little adjunct to Cullen Bond's much-missed Fearless Defenders, although I fear, you know, we've got an event in the way, don't know where that's all going to go. Uh, still a really fun series. I think everyone should take a shot at it. Finally, a dip into the archives for an impactful story from EC Comics. It's called Judgment Day, and it was written by Al Feldstein with art by Joe Orlando, first appearing in Weird Fantasy number 18, which was on the stands in February of 1953. Story is this. Thousands of years after Earthmen have put into place a handful of robots to colonize a distant planet, an Earthship representing the Galactic Republic has come back to Cybernia to see if their civilization has progressed enough to join their Grand Union. Astronaut Tarleton discovers a race of gleaming orange robots engaged in a democratic society. As each new robot is both created and then educated, they must take up responsible positions towards moving their society forward. Tarleton also finds that there's a race of blue robots forced to live in a squalid part of the city, denied the same education as the orange race. While being led through the blue factory, Tarleton points out to his, his orange guide uh, that those, there's inequality in their society and how they haven't yet made themselves ready to join the Republic. He does give them hope, telling them that Earth had been in the same place, but once mankind learned to live together, Real progress began, and as he says, the universe was ours. Tarleton gets back in his ship, removes his helmet, revealing himself to be a black man. <laughs> this was heavy stuff in 1953, and when EC tried to reprint this tale in Incredible Science Fiction 33 in 1956, the brand new Comics Code Authority President, Judge Charles Murphy, demanded they make him Caucasian. <laughs> Uh, William Gaines, Al Feldstein, the EC people, they persisted. And this important story was run as intended even a second time. Uh, if you can find it online, read it. I mean, I gave everything away here, but the EC horror and science fiction books were 
something special way back when. It was the Comics Code basically started to put them out of business, and they did. Uh, he also made William Gaines a millionaire because what he was left with was one book, and that was Mad, which he went from comic book to magazine. Hmm. And he was unhappy at losing all those books, Tales from the Crypt and The Haunt of Fear and all those things. But read this one, Judgment Day. Very cool. Um, Bob, mm -hmm. have you heard anything about, um, I think EC Comics recently got options for a television series? Yeah, they're going to do some sort of anthology in the way they did back in the day. Hmm. Because those Tales from the Crypt episodes, was it HBO back then? Yeah. I yeah. think so. A lot of them were directly from the old stories. I Yeah, so, I, I used to watch Tales from the Crypt all the time. Oh my God, I remember that with the Crypt Keeper and you. The Crypt Keeper. Yeah. Uh, he made the worst jokes, but they were so. It was, yeah, it was. But, but he was also right from the books. He hosted the stories in Tales from the Crypt, and there was the old witch and the Crypt yeah. Keeper and the Vault Keeper, and yeah. I'm a sucker for puppetry, and I just I loved the animatronic mouth and the you know the wire work and everything with him. So mm -hmm. cool. Mm hmm. And uh, I just want to say super quick that I've I've also been reading Giant Days. I haven't read issue number forty-seven. But I am catching up, and uh, we talked a while ago. I mean, we always, every now and again, we bring up Giant Days. But uh, we talked about how we would read, like, an Ed Gamel comic book. Because mm -hmm. Giant Days, just by, by this point in the series, like, 47 issues in, plus the specials, you know, plus all the other yeah. stuff. That Giant Days has been around for a long time now. We have a significant chunk of it, and it's awesome. But we've also spend so much time with the series that you've really grown to love the whole, like the whole core cast. And I, when I read the, um, the special issue where Ed goes to uh, Australia to meet his girlfriend's parents, like that was through and through an Ed Gamel oversized issue. Yeah. And it was amazing. And it was just as charming and just as awesome as the rest of the series. And I stand by my statement that I would read a comic based on any of those characters. <laughs> I would love like a woodworking one-off with so, um, McGraw. Yeah, with McGraw, yeah. or like mustache <laughs> tips or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> or like the mustache leaves his face in the middle of the night and terrorizes a city and then comes back at the end. I don't know. I anyway. want to see. I want to see Susan on the the hospital floor for an issue. Yes. I want to see oh her God, actually yes. interact with patients. I can't imagine that. I want more of Esther being at the comic book shop. They don't she's always in the like in the stock room having therapy sessions. I want like more <laughs> in-store stuff going on. Um I need to catch up with By Night, which is another John Allison mm. joint. Uh does anybody have anything to say about Bob's books before we move on to my mm. lightning round? I just want to apologize to Megzi on Twitter because I put a shout out last week saying, what book should I read for this week? And she was like, read Giant Days. And I went, yeah, Aww. I trade weight on that. <laughs> I'm a terrible, terrible trade waiter. So I'm sorry, but Bob read it. I was going, Sarah. Way to bring the mood down. <laughs> I, I was for the longest time, Sarah. I Because we when it first came up around here, it was I was 20 odd issues behind. So it was all, <laughs> sorry. Get the, right, get the <laughs> trades, catch up. And I was still doing that, and now it's, nope, I buy the monthlies, and I buy the trades, too, so they can put them on the shelf nicely after, after the, the day is done. Okay. 
Okay, I'll buy more books. <laughs> I know. The uh, volume nine of the trade comes out this week, as a matter of fact. Ooh, just in time. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, money. Hello, for me books. Yeah, What's the paycheck? he needs money. I haven't seen my paycheck in a long time. <laughs> I, I need money. <laughs> All right, here we go. Um, I am going to put out a disclaimer before I do my lightning round. Uh, I'm going to be talking about Uncanny X-Men numbers uh, 1 through 11, plus a little bit of the annual. Uh, I will spoil what has transpired in X-Men, so in Uncanny X-Men. So it's kind of a big deal. So if you haven't been paying attention or you're holding off uh, reading it and whatnot... Um, just, I'm putting it out there right now. If you want to fast forward, um, like two and a half, three minutes or whatever, how long, however long it's going to take me to talk about this, um, I'm going to spoil stuff. So that's the deal. Um, you guys are okay with that, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not like you have a choice, but. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for pretending yeah. that we do. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Five minutes on the clock for myself. I can go. Uh, Uncanny X-Men numbers 1 through 11. Kelly Thompson, Matt Rosenberg, Ed Burson, and a copious amount of artists, including Muman Osram. Uh A bunch of stuff happens. That's literally what I have in my notes, including a war between Legion and X-Man, one of the dumbest names for a comic book character or mutant ever, in my opinion. Uh, X-Man has assembled some of Marvel, some of the Marvel Universe's most inspired world builders from both sides of the tracks, and he's willing to use his Omega-level powers to make their ideas our reality. Um, he, X-Man is like God-level kind of, kind of powers in this, remaking reality on a whim, uh, and trying out ideas from like some of the worst of the worst. So... Before long, Legion shows up, and he and X-Man merge to become this super Omega mutant, and all hell breaks loose. Uh, the story ends on a bit of a quiet note, until after speaking with Jean, his mother, X-Man pulls his own version, and this is the spoiler part, so if you're still listening and you don't want to be spoiled on this, tune out for the next minute or two. X-Man pulls his own version of No More Mutants, thereby wiping the slate clean of all mutant life anywhere. What? Uh, Except, an issue later, several mutants are still alive, and oh, is that Cyclops and Wolverine back in the mix? (laughs) Um, Just a little side note, the annual with with Cyclops coming back was awesome. Like, I can't wait to talk to Joey about that when he comes back. I know that he was excited for it. I really enjoyed it. I thought that was one of the standout issues of everything that I'd read. Um, So then it occurred to me, like, has this suddenly become a team-up book wherein Scott and Logan work alongside one another to restart the mutant race? I think so. (gasps) So, uh, yeah, I mean, look, I don't follow the X-Men. It's been a long time since I've read them. Uh, this was a big deal for me, especially because, like, in the middle, I kind of started to feel very X-Men-y to me. And it was like, to me, my X-Men, and there were, like, 30 people there that I didn't know. And I'm just like, oh, boy, now I'm lost in the X-Men universe. But it all came together in the end, 
and I it was it was a moment for for me at least. I had a lot of fun. The other book that I want to talk to you that I have two minutes and eighteen seconds for is I moved to Los Angeles to work in animation, and this is by Natalie Nurugat. Uh, she is a cartoonist and storyboard artist at Disney, and so throughout the book, uh, graphic novel. Natalie elaborates and educates on the following topics, uh, applying for jobs, moving to a new area, the good and the bad of doing that, uh, what's to love and loathe about living in LA, perks of working in an animation, in animation guild studios, a day in the life of an animator, and how to break into the business and other chapters uh, going forward. So... I'm a huge animation hound. I have been since I was a child. I wrote Ink and Pixel for Joe Blow for something like five years or whatever. Um, I've studied it. I love it. I, I watch animated stuff all the time. I'm always fascinated by it. And this was a real treat to get a like boots on the ground view of what it's like to actually break into the animation industry. And there's even a couple of interviews with other animators in the back. And it's a very text-heavy, uh, like, tiny – not tiny graphic novel. It's like 100 pages or so. Um, but it's more, like, zine-sized than mm. anything else on a regular book. So it's very cute. It's very cool. It's from Boombox. And um, so I found the book to be informative and funny and encouraging and a great story about someone who dreamed real big and worked real hard to get where she is today. And I also love the artwork. So because Natalie talks a lot about the art of storyboarding and shorthand sketches, the whole book has this simple yet super expressive quality uh, to it that couples perfectly with several of the drawing methods highlighted throughout the book. So it's a really cool thing to like learn about the art process, but then actually see it used as the primary art for the book. So you're kind of like you're learning in two different ways. Uh, when you're reading this. So if you're interested in a career in animation or simply find the medium as fascinating as I do, you should definitely pick this book up. I had two seconds left on my clock. Nice. Oh, Legendary. Nice. Thank you very much. I never do that. So, <laughs> uh, so there you go. That was from Boombox. Uh, I moved to Los Angeles to work in animation and uh, Uncanny X-Men numbers 1 through 11, uh, of course, from Marvel. All right. It's time. <laughs> We've been talking about this all week. Uh, I'm going to have Sarah lead the discussion. We have one book for our open discussion this week, and that is Female Furies number one from DC Comics. Sarah, would you care to take it away? Yes, I am going to read the previews entry to explain what this book says that it is. So, all their lives, the female Furies have been raised to be the meanest, most cunning and most ruthless fighting force on all of Apocalypse. So why are Granny Goodness's girls left behind every time the men go to war? With the might of New Genesis hanging over the planet and the forever people making mincemeat out of Darkseid's army, Granny thinks it's about time that changed. And so, Big Barda, Oralee, Mad Harriet, Lashina, Bernadette and Stomper set out to beat the boys at their own game. Little do they know the game is rigged and one accidental murder could spell disaster for them all. 
Female Furies is an exciting new miniseries starring some of Jack Kirby's coolest fourth world characters by the writer of Shade the Changing Girl and the artist of Plastic Man, rated T+. Now, it's very important that it's rated T+, um, because I think this book should have come with quite a lot of warnings on it. Um, I'm going to start off with a relatively positive note. I can see what the book was trying to do. what I I think it was trying to do. I think it's trying to be a story of female empowerment, of sisters doing it for themselves, of women showing their might in a world ruled by men. But honestly, for me, it fails. And it fails so utterly that it literally left me feeling physically sick. This book has got mental torture, sexual abuse, rapey themes. I would be happy if this book didn't exist at all, which is a really harsh thing to say. But if you want stories of female empowerment, go and read Bitch Planet or Unbeatable Squirrel Girl or Ms. Marvel. Um, That that previews thing that I just read, I read that and I'm like, I don't really know what a granny goodness is. I don't know what a new genesis is. I do not know the forever people. However, I have heard of Big Barda because everyone says she's great in Mr. Miracle. I will read this book. Mm. Um, the art I found it to be really clunky and old fashioned um, really thick lines really tough to make out facial expressions very very 90s um, and there's some panels where the female furies the title characters didn't even have faces drawn on unless they were the ones right at the front of the panel um, there's an entire beauty pageant scene oh. that is just patronizing and clunky and some of the characters bodies literally change shape from panel to panel and there's one character that i think is mad harriet she literally has one facial expression five panels five body shapes one facial expression um and the writing is by i don't know if it's cecil castellucci or if it's cecile castellucci and the art is by adriana malo but I was genuinely shocked to realise that that is a pair of females on the creative team. Can someone like start yeah. talking? Because I'm getting yeah. myself worked no, up again I was here. The same. I was the same way, Sarah. And then as the two females on this podcast, I was shocked that this was written and done by two women. It was shocking to me after I read it. And I was kind of excited when I read the the previews for it. I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. That sounds like something I'd be totally into. Um, and like you said, like you can see kind of what they were trying to do and it missed it missed the mark so spectacularly i just i've never really and i i normally don't speak really poorly about books uh, on the show and i'm i'm not that kind of person and and when i worked in the store like if i just didn't like it i normally just didn't talk about it but like this was really rough to read like you yeah. said like the the you know the rapey tones and the sexualness and uh, you know uh, and and just the whole tone of it overall i mean the beauty pageant part where again i get what they were trying to do it missed it completely it's just never it's it's not showing female empowerment it's really showing like just females getting used for whatever they can and then you know don't forget i'm gonna spoil a little bit um in the beginning of the book you know granny is having sex with them and she knows that that's what she's doing it for. Mm. So, you know, like she, she goes into it knowing like, so it's not, you know, it's not like she's putting up a stand for herself. She goes along with it. I I was just very, I was very taken, you know, taken aback by 
how this book came off and the fact that it was written by two women. And I don't like to speak harshly about books, but um, it's a it's a no for me. It's it's just a no. Yeah, uh, this deserves all those words. This is a failure of Hindenburg proportions. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, for for what that preview that Sarah read was, we would probably all kind of get behind that. The book that's delivered, I, I assume, and one should not assume, I, I imagine that this was intended to be satirical. But the scene you mentioned with Granny Goodness, where she, she knows what she's doing, and so she's, in essence, sleeping her way to the side. Mm. It, it, it's just hideous. The motivations of these characters don't make a whole lot of sense. And that's from either side of the equation. The, the men in question... I don't know what they think they're going to get out of this eventually. The women, even worse, there isn't one of them that's a fully formed character with any agency whatsoever, it seems like. They, they allow themselves, if they're these fierce warriors, to allow themselves, they're only, it's a beauty contest, it's a smile contest, it's evening gowns, they have a bake-off. And they're making jokes about it. Uh, no, Barta should stick the cake pan up Darkseid's <laughs> nose. Yeah. Up his dark side? Up, Up his yes. dark side, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Willick wants, uh, wants Orly for special training. The special training basically involves touching or took us. Amongst other things. Yeah. yeah. It, uh, the art choices. Yeah, that was a whole other, oh, God. That... Yeah. I, uh, the, mm. Yeah. Uh, the art choices are, it is not satirical. It is sort of creepy instead of insightful it, art is as you say it is very old 90s and that was a period we didn't need to go back to and as you see the there's a battle training sequences where it is five broke back poses and you name it it's there mm. if, if you wanted to be one of these ladies gynecologists you couldn't get a closer look at stuff <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. my so, my Anyway, um, fail. Complete and utter failure for me. Um, um, yeah, I guess I'll cap this uh, <laughs> yeah. super positive this, this love off. fest right here? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I was really thrown by it. I, you know, I, this is going to sound stupid. Of course, I get excited for books. I'm excited for books every week. That's why I'm there. Uh, but I was pumped. You know, I really, really loved Shade the Changing Girl and Shade the Changing Woman. And the idea of uh, that creator having the chance to write Big Barda, um, having freshly come off of really loving Mr. Miracle and all the work that was done with her there, um, how she was the standout character of that series for me and kind of my, my full introduction to that character. I was really, really excited for this. And Wednesday came around and I purchased them in the morning, got done with work, did whatever. And then finally it was time to lay down. And it was the first book that I pulled out. And I'm like, yeah, let's go. Like, let's see what this is all about. And just the, like the, the, the corrosion of my spirit <laughs> throughout the reading of this book where I was just like, wow. You know, like I don't I try not to presume what I think anybody's trying to do with a book because I'm I'm not a comic book creator. I'm just some dude with a microphone. But like I like you all said, I think I know what was 
tr- what was trying to happen here. I just mm. think that it it really really missed the mark because it was it was assaulting and it was harsh and like and we've seen some of these themes dealt with in things like juke joint and man eaters and you know bringing bringing a lot of these uh to- like these topics and these terrible things that go on to the forefront and uh, kind of putting them in your face so that you'll take notice of them but i just think that the de- the delivery uh was not for me mm. you know it, it was it was one example after another after another after another to set up these final pages where it kind of takes a turn but by the end of the book i was so disgusted with what it transpired because it's not like it ever lets up like mm. once that stuff begins yeah, it keeps and it's going. pretty much at the beginning yeah. it keeps <laughs> going and like every page there's a fresh horror you know and i i i just i was reading it and i was just like oh damn Oh God! Next week's podcast, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I think, really. We, I think there were messages between everyone. Me and I know I saw Bob on Sunday. Me and Bob, I was like Bob. Yeah. <laughs> I picked it up. He was like, "Oh, you're not gonna like that." I'm like, "Oh boy." Like I said, Sarah, even your your wife was like, "Yeah, Steve just said the mm. same exact thing to yeah. me." <laughs> like I was like, "Oh God." Like I put it down, and I'm thinking about next week's show, and I'm like, "Well, here we go. Open discussion. <laughs> yeah. Boom." I mean, um, I. So you I try and be positive. I, you know, I really try and be positive. And I was on Twitter last week and I was, I, I tweeted out, you know, I am genuinely shocked to have found that what I read as Cecil Castellucci, assuming it's a man named Cecil, that I was surprised. And a few people kind of came back to me and went, oh, I was thinking about picking that up. And I just said, hey, pick the book up, read it. Don't, don't not read a book because I've had a negative reaction to it because mm-hmm. other people might not have that reaction. But, Speaking as a woman who has literally been in that position where a man has felt that because he is my boss, he has the justification, the ability to touch me inappropriately. I don't need to read that in a book. I don't need to have that put on the page in front of me in a book that when you read the blurb for it, it's like, we're going to beat the boys at their own game. Well, no, you're not doing that. All you're doing is upsetting me and putting me off as a comics fan. And frankly, I have now spent the last 10 minutes complaining about your book on a podcast that people listen to. Yeah. And I'm not going to come back for issue two. You might turn it around in issue two and you you might empower all these women and they might kick these men's asses into touch. But it's too late. Um, and I... <laughs> Yeah. Do you know who I'd really love to hear the opinion of on this book? Ronald. I really, <laughs> Soska sisters. Oh yeah. yeah. I really want to know what they think of it. Yeah, no, because and... it just keeps doubling down <laughs> until I got to the point where I went, I know something happened in the last three pages of this book, but like the red mist had descended by then and I just stopped caring. But Hey, read the book. Yeah. Send and, me your opinion. And, please. No, and you know, Sarah, like I think, I like what you're saying. Like, you know what I mean. I think if it was written differently too, like you could have read that about that situation and felt a connection to it. If it was written in a a positive way, in in mm. a female empowerment kind of way, this was not written like that. This was written in like these guys just do what they want to these chicks, and these these chicks just kind of go along with it. You know, it wasn't that these girls did anything. You know, they kind of oh no, I'm not going to go, but they still go. You know, mm. like. No, yeah. you were, you know what I mean? Like, there's none of that. So I think, 
you know, again, where we're saying that you can kind of see where they were going. I think if it was written better, I, I don't know. I really, I don't know what could save that, to be honest with you. I'm trying. I'm grasping at straws to be yeah, nice. That's what I, <laughs> I really am. Well, you know, to me, just you can, you can hit these weighty topics and hit them heavily, but you still need to tread lightly. You still need mm-hmm. to be aware of what you're doing and how you're saying it. So in a book where some of the art choices, because of the style that's being used, come off as very male gazy, and so does the writing, which is even makes yeah, see, worse. That kind of makes sense to me, though, that if you're if you're you're going to pair those two together for mm-hmm. for the the themes that are touched on in that book, it, it mm. appropriate as inappropriate <laughs> as, as appropriate uh, yeah. can but be. Then, yeah. then what has yeah. to happen, though, for me, the you have to see the power of the, the characters being abused. You have mm. to see there's a core, a flintiness, uh, the, the, the stick to of, well, even if it doesn't manifest itself instantly, because it's six issues or whatever it's going to be, you still need to see, oh, why should I care about these characters when the best moment they have is uh, moaning about what cakes they're baking? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the point that it lost me is there's like Bob said, there's this there's this quote unquote action sequence where one of the characters, because I've already given up on learning their names, she doesn't have a spine in one, she's got <laughs> boob socks in another, mm-hmm. and they literally have a caption that says, My sister Bernadette is a desiccated mule. If you can bring rain to that desert, I'll give her to you myself. Seriously, from one girl to another. Yes, that's the thing. It's not from like one of the. It's from one man to you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, sorry, I'm 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 done. It's rough. All right. So anyway, (laughs) basically, um, you know, we always encourage everybody on the uh, who listens to the show to go out and make your own opinions. It's rare that we we bring a book to the table where we're all pretty negative uh, on it, but. uh, we wanted to exercise a few demons and try to have a yeah. conversation. Yeah, <laughs> but like I don't I think said, we've he, ever he, panned a book like this before. Now, like I don't. Well, I mean, me. no, it's it's, <laughs> defi- it's definitely happened in the past. But like, I'm I'm kind of reminded, uh, you know, when when we're saying that the delivery of um of these themes and of these things that happened in the book, like this, the delivery is not for us. Um, hmm here on the podcast but i'm reminded of something uh sarah do you remember when i sent you a video link for that band of brutus um the song war yes with the with the the female drummer she was also the singer yeah. yes okay. so i played that for bronwyn and she was commenting about you know how how beautiful it was but also that it wasn't exactly to her taste because when she was listening um to the singer i apologize i don't know her name but um she it sounded like a woman in pain mm. and for me like i can definitely see that but for me and especially having been uh, a musician uh it, way back when um sometimes music for people is a way to like exercise their demons and work through their pain and everything like that and so when i hear her singing the way she does that's what i hear and that's what i see mm. and just so that you know basically my point is delivery. You know, some yes. things will work for some people that won't that won't work for others. And we're a pretty sensitive group when it comes to this stuff. I think anybody True. that listens to the show would know that we 
we wouldn't really groove on on some of the things happening in female furies um but you know what if other people are are digging it and that's your bag then um have fun mm. yeah. um i did i did get some tweets from um greg on twitter obviously i got tweets on twitter sorry it's quite late now um at hulkbeast 51 he came back to me and he said this book i think i have an idea of what they're going for subsequent issues are important because if this isn't executed well in every issue it'll fall apart completely i don't like that dc completely blinded readers with no warning and i think he's got a point there because i think that's the thing that got me was that i was anticipating one thing and what I got was something different. Um, and other people might not get that. Other people might love this book. And please tell me if you do and tell me why you loved it. Because mm. yeah. I am bringing all my own personal experience and my own personal prejudice to my yeah. reading of this book. And I've had some pretty traumatic experiences in my life that have colored my reading of the book. And as Joey always says, don't yuck on someone else's yum. So I'm sure there are people out there who love this book. And I am sorry to those people mm. for basically pooping on it but no i think that a, a like one extra page for a trigger warning page would have been a mm. smart move um mm. i've seen other other creators do that on some image titles and, and otherwise uh juke joint had one of those and just you know just a just a heads up um i mean it's a totally different book but um in the the moving to la to work in animation book that i talked about um natalie has a page in the beginning specifically saying that like this is my privileged experience of breaking into animation. This is what happened to me. Like not everybody is going to have this experience. Please, you know, take all this advice and all of these tips and everything and use them to the best of your ability. Your experience will not be mine. And she's mm. very, she's very conscious of the idea that not everybody is going to have the same experience when trying to break into animation, um, race, gender, take your pick. Um, so it's, it's wise to address mm. the audience sometimes up front and you know what like maybe back in the day uh those things weren't common but like we're living in different times now and people are waking up to a lot of things and it would just it would you would go far and it would be wise to include something like that just as a courtesy to some yeah. of your like would be readers so that if the if they've had some similar experiences with the content of your book, they can brace themselves because they're fans of your work and they're fans of the publisher. They want to support you, but it would be cool if they knew that they were going into the book, that there will be some shit in it that gets real. And you just you need to know this is going to be that kind of book. Mm -hmm. That's my thought anyway. Yeah. The, the one thing that has just occurred to me, did anybody else notice the subtitle? Of this issue no female furies yeah. part one anything you can do i can do bleeding having read the book that has a whole different meaning for me yeah. now. Yes. oh my god and yeah I do, mm, yeah mm, that should have raised I'm a red close flag this. it's on my desk and i'm just gonna close it and put it over here i'm just gonna, right. I'm just gonna yeah. slide <laughs> it underneath over on number one yep. on to sunnier shores <laughs> moving away from this transition hey everybody we are back this week we'd like to welcome david pepos back to the show co-creator and writer of both spencer and Locke for action lab comics as well as the upcoming grand theft astro set to be published by top cow 
We've also got George Santiago Jr. in the house, co-creator and artist of Spencer and Locke, and creator of the supernatural anti-bullying body horror webcomic, Curse of the Eel. Thank you so much for joining us, gentlemen. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. You're very, very welcome. All right, so I feel like we're going to be living in a perpetual deja vu for the next 45-ish minutes. (laughs) Uh, but we're going to do our best with it. And I have some icebreaker questions for you both. So I will begin with David. David, you recently went axe throwing. How much fun did you have? And can I count on you to keep me safe when the apocalypse comes? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, it was awesome. Uh, I felt like Thor. Uh, it was amazing. <laughs> they, they had two different sizes of axes. And uh, it's kind of like a weird... You throw it with both arms, but you're putting all your, like, right in between your shoulder blades into it. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was wild. Um, So I hit a couple bullseyes, so that was great. So, yes, if you have a steady supply of axes, I can keep you safe during the apocalypse. But it's only, it's it's a bring your own axe situation, okay? (laughs) You you haven't gotten it to boomerang back to you like Thor's hammer yet? Yeah, not not yet. You got to just kind of pull it out of the the wood or the zombie stack. Whatever you want to do, but honestly, like, like I've never felt more, more, more powerful or alive than pulling that axe out of the wood. I felt like a real superhero. It was awesome. <laughs> how like how hard were were you throwing the axes into stumps that were set up on the opposite side of the room? They uh, they had uh, planks of wood that they could slide in and out of the wall, and uh, so yeah, we just kind of chuck them, and it was probably a good like fifty feet, maybe not even that long, maybe like. 20 or 30 feet more I'm thinking about it and uh Still good. yeah it was it was wild it was uh I'd never done it before but it was uh it was, it was super fun I'm gonna I'm definitely gonna go back again right on I went uh axe throwing for part of my bachelor party uh, a few years back uh-huh. and uh we had a similar situation where we went axe throwing but they also had um like kunais and combat what? knives and stuff what? And what? I'm serious. And the um, like the stumps that, that they were using were so chewed up from use that every time that you threw one of the things and you landed it, like shards of the wood would come like flecking off and fly everywhere. Nice. And you get this really satisfying like rip into the yeah. wood. Mm-hmm. It was Absolutely. fantastic. Yeah, you you could you could see there were di- di- little spots in the wood that the axe would like sink itself into naturally, and I was like, oh, that's like. It gets stuck real in there. And you have to pull real hard to get it out. It was, it was awesome. Satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And George, yes. here's your question. Okay, I'm ready. Lollapalooza is coming back, and they want you to choose three live acts for the main stage. Who do you choose to represent your eclectic taste in music at the big show? Oh God! Um, <laughs> I know you like music. I know I, that about you. I, so let's... I I do like music, but like my taste in like it's gonna like no one no one no one going to that event is gonna be happy because like <laughs> you uh, are you gonna be happy? Them. They're gonna be so trash. Yeah. They're not even gonna know. Okay. Um. So can they? Do they have to be living, or can I? Can I like resurrect people? Can I do clones? Like resurrect. Anybody Go you for want. It. You yep. won a contest, and they're gonna give you the ability to bring people back from the dead. Okay, uh, so the first person I want to have there is Blockhead. Blockhead is—he's not dead. He is—he is a modern musician. <laughs> but like, what I, what I love about his music is that, uh, unlike a lot of modern music, uh, 
Well, for, first of all, mostly what he puts out is instrumental music. Um, it's mm -hmm. a lot of sort of a, like he, he usually works with like hip hop artists, like indie ones, like creating beats for them. But he also releases albums of just like his own instrumental music. And it's some of the most like beautiful, but also like thought provoking songs. Like there's no there's no there's no words attached. Like it's a lot of it's a lot of sampling. But he also um, like it's just it's it's. It's it's music that tells a story. It has a beginning, a middle, of an e and an end, which I I don't think a lot of modern music tends to have. A lot of songs are just sort of like, oh, I'll play this same thing over and over and over again, and then here's a solo. And like it, it's very um, it's very same. It's very much the same every time. But like I feel that every one of Blockhead's albums is a. It's almost like a a novel, and each one like has a theme. Like there nice. there's. Like there's one called uh, Downtown Science that like I could swear he wrote uh, centered around like the death of somebody like important to him because like all of the music is very somber and it's very sort of like um, city sounding like there, there's it, it just it, it's a lot of um, it, it feels like I don't know it like it, it's great like as a as a writer and as an artist like to listen to music I feel like it needs to evoke an image or a story and so I've derived a lot of inspiration from from Blockhead. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I love his music. So I, I would love, I would love for him to be there. Also, he, okay. uh, whenever he does lives, uh, like, li like live performances, they're like hour to two hour long live sessions where he, he gets his songs and he strings them into like hour long songs. And so like nice. he'll, he'll, yeah, he'll take songs from old albums, songs from new albums and string them together. And then he'll also like intersperse like, uh, like popular songs, like, um, uh, man, there's there's one that I really love where he takes um, uh, the like the lyrics uh, and the performance from like a Ludacris song, but then he overlays it over like his music, and I'm like, oh man, Ludacris, you you would still <laughs> be never a, sounded better. Yeah, you would still be a rapper if, you, if if Blockhead was the was your producer. So like, I love Blockhead. He's my like main source of inspiration as far as music goes. Oh, um, man, I'll have to check him out. Yeah, he's amazing. Um, I, I can, I can see if I can find a link to one of his lives on YouTube and I can, I can share it into the chat. So everyone. Yeah, can, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's definitely. great. Yeah, um, I'm always looking for new music. All right. You've got two more acts left to go. Yeah. I'll try to keep this quick. Um, I would resurrect Beethoven. Wow. What a choice. Nice. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's, it's fairly obvious. Like, oh yeah, Beethoven. But like, I would like my favorite song from Beethoven is, uh, the pathetic sonata which is nice yeah it's and like i i heard that song years ago and just like the whole beginning part of it just it like again i guess i just like tragedy like the whole the first movement of that i think it's like three movements um the first movement feels like like it was written around like the loss of somebody important and like i know i know he didn't write the name of it like the the title was given by somebody else, but like I don't know. It's just, I love that that song, and if if anything, I would just love to hear him play on the piano. You know, even yeah, just even if it was just like piano renditions of some of his like uh, symphony work. But it would be. I I also I sort of lament being somebody who is like a casual classical music fan that I'm never gonna hear the music the way that Beethoven wanted it to be played. Because you know, like conduct, like you know, com uh, conductors are they're they're putting their own spin on it, which they should. But like the idea, they're like, oh man, like there's no recordings of what this music sounded like mm -hmm. by the actual creator, and I'm just like, man, right. like that's it's kind of sad, but it's also like this is the world we live in, where like 
these these classical composers were making amazing music and like won't because we were not born in that time and we were not and even if we were would we have been high cultured enough to be able to see it like it's kind of it's kind of a magic that yeah, it, was, it was reserved for certain people yeah like it's it's kind of a magic that like i'll never get to ex- well i'll get to experience it like somewhat but yeah mm. um so the bait and then i think uh okay my third one um you know what you need you need this is one of a fantasy of mine i want to rent a sensory deprivation tank and close it up but have a pair of headphones inside and just leave me in there for an hour with whatever album i choose just floating and listening to the music yeah i i did one of those and i just itched the entire time (laughs) (laughs) i i was i was it was a really disappointing hour yeah, I, I get bored in the bathtub after five minutes, so I don't know how long I'd last. But I think the music would keep me anchored. I think I would, I would probably dig it just because, well, I don't know. I'm kind of paranoid, so I probably would be like, oh, no, I bet they left me in here. I bet I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die in this pool of water in a, in a thing. And my, my, only, my only reference for sensory deprivation tanks is the Daredevil movie with Ben Affleck <laughs> in it. So okay. I would start, like, I would just start hearing Evanescence, like, in my ears and be <laughs> It's like, oh, wake me up inside. (laughs) uh, Uh, I see a movie called Altered States. Might change your mind or make it a lot worse. (laughs) Okay. Uh, One one more band. Okay. uh, I'm going to go. All right. This is going to be weird, but no, it's not weird. All right. I'm going to pick a Digimo. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of him, but he is a he is a Japanese rapper. Okay, and I, I I just really like his music. I've been hearing, I've I've heard it in like TV shows and stuff growing up, and I bought like uh like albums from him, and like I don't know, I, I can't understand it. A lot of it, like I'm trying to learn Japanese, but I don't, I don't understand what he's saying. But like it's just the, I don't know, it, it's it's like a rapper, but also like with like pop sensibilities in it, and so like okay. it just yeah, I just I don't know, I just I just dig the sound of it. So yeah, that 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 would be my. Lollapalooza that only I would be there and enjoying it. Like uh, we'd be there. I we'd be I there. Would buy tickets based on that bill. I would go to that. People Beethoven? Are, yeah, the, are you kidding me? Uh, sounds real cool. And was it Digimo? Yeah. D I G G Y M O. He's got some videos on on YouTube, but like uh the cool thing about the modern era is now I can just buy his albums on iTunes. Like they're just right. available. And so yeah, I've got like his most recent album on my, like in my iTunes thing, and it, it, when it pops up, I'm always like, oh, oh, this sounds great. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna check out this Beethoven. It sounds like he's going places. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not too many people have heard about him. He's kind of like he's oh, under wow. a lot of people's radar. I mean, like oh. he's no Skrillex, but like you know. <laughs> well, before you know it, everybody will start acting real hipster about Beethoven. But you know, we can say that we were in on the ground floor. I will say there was a point in my life where I did want to bring the the powdered wig back. I was watching Amadeus, like as oh, no. yeah, like I ended up watching. Uh, I had missed Amadeus when I was um, a kid, and so I watched it when I was in grad school. And watching that movie, I was like, man, I would rock a powdered wig. <laughs> I'm fine with the powdered wigs coming back. That is that is yeah, do that. Make I'll, the thing. On, dude. All right. Okay. I, okay, I'm writing this down. Powdered wig. All right, 
The next time that we get together, uh, when you guys have more stuff coming out, we're all going to wear powdered wigs. Powdered wigs for everyone. I'm just going to start. To the, to the I'm just going to start wearing a powdered wig to conventions. Like, yes, almost, yes. Yeah. please I, do. <laughs> all right, here we go. Uh, David, seeing as you haven't been on the show since our 300th episode, spectacular. Back in August of 2017, and George, you've never been here before, except for last week. Um, <laughs> why don't you both share uh, a bit about your comic book origin stories with our listeners? David, why don't you go first? Yeah, well, I my secret origin starts with, uh, I was an editorial intern at DC Comics uh, in the summer of 2008. So I worked on series like Final Crisis, Batman R.I.P., Green Lantern, Secret Origins. Um, and it was kind of a dream come true. It was, it was, it was such a wonderful experience and I had such a great time and it was also when a recession hit. So there were no jobs. There was nothing. Um, there, there was literally no chance. I was doing three internships in the state of New York. I thought for sure I would have a job. There were no jobs. Um, thankfully I crossed paths with Janelle Aslan, um, who had just started at the Batman office as an assistant editor. And um, she was an alumni of Newsarama.com. She was a reviewer over there. She connected me with her editor, Troy Brownfield, who uh, became a mentor to me. And uh, I wound up becoming a a comic book reviewer. Um, And uh, when Troy eventually retired, I I wound up taking over for him as the reviews editor at Newsarama. And so that was about a 10-year experience um, where I was just kind of reading everything I could and sort of trying to metabolize kind of what I liked, what I didn't like, trying to articulate why didn't I like it or why did I like something. Um, but, you know, something that somebody said at Wizard once was it's like being a kid at a candy store where, like, a significant percentage of the candy is rancid. Um, and <laughs> so I, I uh, you know, there was, there was a period of time, um, of, uh, summer of 2014, I was not really connecting with anything. Uh, there was very little I was really I was liking. It was kind of burning me out because I don't know. I don't think a lot of people go into reviews wanting to write bad reviews. Like we'd much rather just like read a bunch of stuff that we dig and put a spotlight on that. Um, and so that's when like that forbidden thought kind of popped into my head, which is all right. If you're so smart, why don't you write a comic? Put your money where your mouth is. And so I was like, oh, okay, that could be cool. Um, and so people say, write about what you know. And, um, for me, I was like, well, I don't know anything. Like I, I, uh, I'd worked as a reporter, uh, and then I worked in publicity, but I really didn't know anything. I had no special expertise about anything except for comics. And then I thought, oh, comics, you do know comics. Um, and that was kind of how Spencer and Locke got started. Uh, it was just sort of, hey, what if I took one trailblazing creator and what if we matched them up with another trailblazing creator and what kind of overlap do they have and what kind of sparks and friction could we get off of that mashup? And um, yeah, and then fast forward to here and I'm, I'm here on your podcast. So uh, hey. yeah, that's my that's my secret origin. Right on, man. A uh, quick follow-up question. Shoot. When you were doing reviews, did you often find it difficult to write negative reviews? Was that something that you that you kind of you just know, were not jazzed to be doing once you found that you didn't like something? Well, so I so was I jazzed? No. Uh, did it? I wouldn't say it was 
it's not hard, but it's a different set of muscles um, because you, you have to figure out, you have to articulate what you don't like. And then you have to figure out, is this something that I personally wouldn't like or do I think a significant portion of the readership wouldn't like? Or is mm-hmm. it's me being cranky because I haven't eaten anything today? <laughs> um, you know, or, you know like it's, it, you have to really kind of interrogate the work and yourself and you have to figure out a way to do it that you're not being a jerk. Because mm-hmm. look, here's here's the thing. I I'm not one of those guys that that thinks snark is necessarily a substitute for substance. Um, you know, it's not to say that you can't be insightful and, and, and incisive and snarky, but like my take is, I don't want to say anything that I would not feel comfortable saying to somebody's face. Um, because I, you know, I would much rather just be considered tough but fair. You know that 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 mm-hmm. uh, that. My points being made are not, you know, they're, they're unassailable or as unassailable as we can make them. Um, because Lord knows I've had so many people comment saying, how much did Marvel pay you to, to, to write this review? Or how much did Marvel pay you to, to say? Oh, I get that from, from uh, Jobo people. It's so annoying. And vice versa. And, oh, man, Lord knows if I, if I had a penny for every time somebody said that I got paid by a company to either promote their book or, or, or uh, diss their rivals, I mm-hmm. be here. I, I you know, I, um, but uh, I, you know, it's just a matter of trying to remember that there's a human being on the other side of your reviews. Um, yes, and it's not to say that, like, yeah, not you know, there are some scripts that people aren't they're not able to give their full hundred percent for whatever reason. Maybe they're not filling the, the the assignment, or maybe they are running on a deadline, or maybe they've got something personal going. Who knows? Uh, we'll never know. But um, I can guarantee you, even if the writer or, you know, is not sort of giving their 100 percent, everybody else on the team is, um, you know, comics. I've said that reviews was like barely enough training to get a comic off the ground. Like it, it I, I thought I, I knew a lot. And that was like the just very tip of the iceberg. I feel like uh, making a comic is a million times harder than a a comic and um but i do think the two processes kind of help shape and inform the other i would agree it's a very very cool answer man george yes why don't you tell us a little bit about your comic book origin story okay um i grew up on the in the desert planet of el paso texas um, I lived in a, not a, like I, I lived near a moisture farm, but I just lived a normal life doing dumb stuff. And, well, just being a normal kid, I suppose. But, um, when I was in high school, uh, a friend of mine on the, on the wrestling team, because yeah, I was a, I was a wrestler because I wanted to get a letterman jacket. Um, what was your weight class? Uh, okay. So I, I wanted to wrestle 171. But I, uh, there, there was a senior that I was never really able to beat because he was like right at <laughs> 171, and I was like, I was actually closer to like 160, and so like he had 10 pounds on me, so I was never really able to beat him to get his spot. Um, so mostly I wrestled the next class up, which was 181. Um, but actually, Whoa. like I, yeah, which like, oh, if you can't beat somebody who's 10 pounds heavier, how about 20? But I guess like at 20 pounds like lighter than the guys I was wrestling like I still managed to come away with like a few like silver like silver medals as far as like um like wrestling in my district kind of thing Mm -hmm. like um 
And so, yeah, like it, I, yeah, and that, that was fun until I dislocated a rib, and then I couldn't do no. it. No, oh, yeah, I've done that. It's terrible. Yeah. It, oh man, there's no, no, nothing more fun than like your looking... your story is a lot better than mine though. I dislocated mine reaching underneath my car to take a load of duct tape off of the bottom. <laughs> Anyway, continue. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but but before before the dislocation happened, I was um, uh, it was at the tail end of practice one morning, and a girl who was on our team, she had a copy of Ranma One Half, which was a manga. I mean, like I had read comics growing up, but like they were they never really tried to, I guess, make it easy for somebody who is like fresh into it to get in, into the comics, and like. Um, and and my, my parents were like the typical parents. Like I, I would get like scattered issues of like random things. Like I had, um, I had like a reprint of the old Ninja Turtles like comic because my parents like, oh, he loves the cartoon. Let's get him the comic. You know the one where they kill the Shredder the first time they meet him. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. one. Um, like I had that. Like, uh, yeah. And so I had just sort of fallen away from comics and from dra- even drawing like as a kid. Um, but then my friend showed me this comp, this manga and I was like, Oh, okay. Martial arts high school. Okay. Guy gets turned in, He turns into a female form of himself when he gets splashed with cold water. Oh, all right. That sounds interesting. And she says, Oh, do you want to borrow it? And I'm like, no, I'm good. And then I spent the rest of the day, which was a Friday. And then the subsequent weekend, like rolling around on the floor, wondering what would happen next in the like subsequent story. Like it had hooked me that much and but th- this is before the days of like google where i where like you could just be like oh well, where do i find this stuff so i had to wait a weekend in order to to figure out like oh well like to borrow the book and figure out where do you get these things from um so in that weekend the only way i was able to pass the time was i was like oh wait well i used to draw why don't i just draw my own comics and i was like okay th- this will work and so it was sort of like a it, it was meant to be like a band-aid like for mm-hmm. the for the the obsession that it was looming within me and you got your fix yeah i was like oh man i was so scratching my arms like oh god i gotta get <laughs> I, I don't got, know where to get these things i i know i'll make it myself which that's got any more of them big pens yeah. <laughs> yeah and so like i went on like so i i went i started dr- trying to write and draw my own stories um and then I, I started it just as yeah it was supposed to be just a just a quick fix but it quickly became like something that I like fell in love with and then when I went to college and I was going for to school for uh, my bachelor's degree and by the time I graduated I had realized that even though I was doing well in graphic design like it, I didn't care about it like I would much rather be spending my time drawing comics. And so I decided, well, maybe maybe this is where I need to go. Maybe this is what I'll do. And so from like 2002, which is when I was still in college, till about 2012, I think, which is when I eventually moved, uh, moved away to Georgia, like I self-published like, I think, seven graphic novels of like varying sizes. Like I think the smallest was 160 pages, the largest oh, wow. Yeah, the largest was 278. And um, yeah, yeah, I just I wrote a bunch of different stories that I thought were were cool. Like I had a, a I had a tale about like uh, like religious vampires because I thought that would be cool. Like <laughs> vampires are not religious. But what if there were some that donned crosses because, you know, they felt that, you know, they 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 existed for a reason and were trying to do good, even though they're 
their natural business is killing people. Um, yeah, just like little things like that. I, I did a my I wanted to do my own version of like a Sailor Moon kind of story. So I did a, I did a Sailor Moon like magical girl story where uh, it's instead of like a 15 year old girl, it's a mother who is a lawyer who wants nothing to do with this. But the magical creature shows up and gives her powers and she's just like, oh, she wants nothing to do with it. Yeah, I I had a bunch this of is like, all I need. <laughs> yeah, they, I feel like they were they were good ideas, but they were just like um, they were not well drawn. And it, it occurred to me as I was making these books that if I was really going to get off the ground, um, I really needed to go back to school. I needed to learn like how to do comics proper. And so I, I applied to SCAD um, as part of like my in like because w- when you apply, you're supposed to send them like uh, 15 uh, pieces of art as like a uh, but like as, as like a portfolio for them to review for the master's degree program. So mm-hmm. I sent I sent them the disc with all of the files on it, my my best pages. And then in the box, I threw in one volume of every book that I had done. And I was like, oh, nice. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I, I was like, you know, d- d- this is ju- this is just to show my resolve. And I got in. I I started, uh, I think, in. Yeah. in like tw- uh, no, it was a uh, 2011. Um I moved, I packed up everything I could in my car. I drove out to, to Atlanta. I started going to school and then, yeah, um, I've, I studied there. I did my best. I learned new, I learned new techniques. I learned new uh, tools that I wasn't using. And yeah, I've just been drawing comics like a crazy person. Hot damn. Bob, it sounded like you wanted to interject for a second. Oh, no, I'm just in awe. Just soaking it all in. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, uh, once you're in school, did you find that what you knew before was a good basis, or did you have to sort of throw it away and start fresh? You know, at first I thought that I like I should throw it all away, and so like there was a like because a lot of my comics reading up to that point had been a lot of manga. Like I was I was feeling like you know what me because like. Um, at the time, there weren't too many artists who were really making, like, like at least in America, who were making, like, big headways into the American comic book industry with, like, a very manga-influenced style. I mean, there there were there were some, you know, like, there were, like, uh, Sean Cheeks Galloway, you know, like, there there was, like, the, the token few, but I feel like that number is really, like, uh, like, exploded in, in the last, like, or at least, like, when I was paying attention. But admittedly, I was pretty ignorant. But um, like that was when I started reading like more like a lot of the American comics that I had, had missed. Like that's when I read um, like Batman Year One and like a lot of Alan Moore stuff. You know, like the like even though I had I had tried to read Watchmen when I was younger, I was like I <laughs> I can't really get into this. I'm not really sure what this is about. Like so I I read Watchmen again. I read um, yeah, just like my my professors really sort of put me through like a like comic book boot camp of all the mm-hmm. things that I had missed and. And um, when I was finishing SCAD, I was looking at the comics that I was making and I actually felt that they weren't as like, I, f- I felt like something was missing. It felt, I felt like every, all the storytelling that I had been doing was um, stuff that I had been just be, like, I was like, okay, look, I'm just digesting the things from the books I'm reading nowadays and the things my professors are, are having me do. And, but I just felt like my pages lacked any sort of, um, real storytelling in them like it, all of the shot choices were very like okay put the camera here because 
this is this is what this is what you've been taught to do or oh like um have your pages be this many panels because this is what you know you're supposed to do and so i looking back at those those projects like i i just didn't feel like they excited me the way that like um the way that like manga does and i think what manga tries to do more so than anything is a it's there's a page flow and a readability that that they have that i really uh i really enjoy and aspire to um and so like around that time that's when i think like one punch man was coming out like the redraw of one punch man by the manga artist yusuke murata who was one of my mm-hmm. fa- who's one of my favorites um and so like i was like well, okay well let me let me go back let me try to let me try to remember my my past and let me figure out these things and um so studying more manga but then bringing in like a lot of the new uh the new techniques that i had learned at scad i i tried to bridge the gap and like that's where my um like my thesis which uh, a lot of my comics or like like curse of the eel was the main portion of my thesis it was about mm-hmm. um how in comic books i feel that panel layouts are can help tell the story just as well as the art does and sometimes if you have great art but a bad panel layout it handicaps the story and so in my i used a bunch of different examples across manga across american comics just sort of showing like you know in these panels you know this is the shape of the like this is the panel layout but they're not using it to like the the utmost that it could be and the book that i i compared it to that i felt is has the strongest panel design and storytelling in it is a book called uh, Not Simple. It's a manga by uh, Natsume Ono. And she, in in the story, there is a sequence where this character is um, like waiting for another character to return to their apartment so they can figure out what the next step of their journey is going to be. And she takes like at least three to maybe five pages of just panels of this one character waiting at home and like normally and like and when you like this is something like we can't really do like with spencer unlocked you know because we have 22 pages like a a month that we get to that we get to use like you know in in this i think in not simple because it was a monthly comic in japan they got like a like 30 pages or 50 pages per month to tell their like for a chapter like so she could dedicate five pages to just a character waiting and yeah. That, yeah, and like that, the way that she would use her panel lines, because in, well, in Japan, the gutters tell like they're, you know, like um, the thick, the wider the gutter, the more space or the more time there is between the panels. And so she was. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so that's why like panels that are um, that are like st- like on the same tier, like that are the, they usually have a smaller vertical gutter than a horizontal one. And so like a lot of times in Japan, like they use that in order to like, if, if events are happening very quickly, they'll tend to put those panels like um, next to each other rather than like on top of each other because that gutter is usually wider. So that sort of implies a, like a, a bigger space of time. And so like she uses like a variety of different panels to show like, Oh, this is where this character is waiting at the table and here's three panels of it. And then, oh, now they moved to the kitchen and they're cleaning something, you know, like, and it just, it blew my mind that like just with just the panel layout, the, the artist was you doing so much to convey the story. And I wanted to incorporate that into my comics, like whenever possible. And so that's where Curse of the Eel comes from. Um, I did a book called The Caverns around that time. Uh, and part of the, the, that was uh, I wanted to see if uh, do you guys remember the 
when they did the Batman New 52, I think it was... Um, oh, yeah, we remember that. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. do you remember? I think it was issue seven. It was the, the issue where... Uh, they did the the rotation like Batman. Yes. Yeah. I think it was um issue number five. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that was the that was the Scott Snyder uh, meeting. I met Scott Snyder on my birthday in a comic shop and asked him to be on the podcast. He said yes. That's awesome. <laughs> and I got yeah. him to sign that comic. It's in one of my long boxes. Yeah, and... like that that comic was beautiful. But like, yes. When I was reading it, like there was a few points where I felt confused. By the because like, the layout would change so abruptly, and uh, and even like I remember on the Twitter, DC Comics had to put out like a, a notice, like just so you guys know, your books are not misprinted. That's how it's supposed to be read. And so I wanted to see if I could do a a story like a rotation like that, uh, have it make sense within the story, but try to lead people into it using panel layouts. So I wrote a story about a detective who um, is looking for a missing child. And he goes into uh, this abandoned home where the child went missing. And he discovers that in this one section of the home, there is a there is a tunnel where there shouldn't be one. And as he goes into it, it leads him into like a Lovecraftian um, like other world that exists between his world and probably like something else. And in order to convey like the detective sort of losing his bearings and losing his um and changing like the dimension that he's in like i had the book slowly start to rotate the panels and rotate the um the 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 dialogue balloons so that way the reader as they're reading this two-page spread instead of just automatically flipping the page and having to rotate the book they're gradually eased into it and like the the best the best feedback I could get was when I would give people the book, like, cause I, I had to print it out and show it to people when they would read it. I wouldn't tell them that there would be a rotation, uh, but just watching them read the book and then slowly start to rotate it in their hands yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> until eventually they're reading, instead of reading left to right, they're reading top to bottom. Like just watching that, I was just sitting there just like, like, uh, just like, like cackling to myself, like, Oh, it works. It's alive. It's alive. <laughs> and so, yeah. And so, um, yeah, so like I, I found a way to sort of bridge the gap between like um, the the like if because if I was going to show you guys the comics I did before I came to SCAD, like it would be like that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where people's faces are melting off. Like it, it's <laughs> they're they're not very well drawn, but like I feel that back then I had like a storytelling. Um, uh, I I had like some storytelling things that I was trying that were more uh, unique, and so I, I tried to bring that into my, my art style now. Damn, dude! Right. I could talk to you all night about this stuff. Yeah, probably <laughs> it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if if you want, I can. I, I'm pretty sure I still have the files. I can like email you. Yeah. The the files for the caverns because I I did I did a lot of cool stuff. I feel like I when the detective is in the normal world, he's in everything's rendered in Copic marker. When he goes to the Lovecraft dimension, it's everything's in watercolor. You know, I tried. Oh, sweet. Yeah, I I like the idea of like the story telling itself like without me having to do a whole lot of like, and then he entered the Lovecraft dimension. Right. Yeah. Let let the art do the, do that for you. Exactly. Yeah. Word up. All right, David, you still with us? Yeah. Still here. Yeah. Sorry about ben. that. No, man. No, this awesome. is great. I love it. You're making yeah. me realize just how much I need to pick up a book about how comics are made and maybe educate myself <laughs> a little bit. I'm like, Hmm, gutter colors. You say, Hmm, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, 
David, why don't you tell us how did you and George actually come together and, and what sparked you into creating Spencer and Locke together? Yeah, well, um, you know, I looked at a lot of different uh, creators' breakout books when, uh, you know, when I thought maybe we should I'd write something on my own. And uh, one of the creators I looked at a lot was Justin Jordan for The Strange Town of Luther Strode. And um, Justin is a very smart guy. Uh, he does a lot of cool, smart things. But I think for that first book, the smartest thing he ever did was he hooked up with Trad Moore. Uh, just, you know, an artist who was so talented and so new on the scene that, you know, you you, you couldn't not look at this book. You know, you, you just you, you had to look at it for the art, if nothing else. And so I thought, you know, where's the next Trad Moore going to come from? Um, you know, Trad is a, a graduate of the Savannah College of Art and Design. And so I looked at a lot of the different art schools. I looked at SCAD, I looked at SVA, I looked at RISD, I looked at the Kubert School. And I looked for anybody who had a portfolio in comics from these schools. And uh, I found George's portfolio and I was uh, you know, really just taken with how expressive and fluid his, his, his artwork was. I mean, he was able to you know, do the action sequences in a way that was really exciting and energetic. But also, you know, he was able to sell the emotional beats. And I feel like that was something I really wanted to do with Spencer and Locke. So I, uh, you know, I, I, I messaged him and, uh, you know, out of the blue. And uh, thankfully, it was sort of the right place, right time. I know he's grad- he was about to graduate uh, from his MFA program at SCAD. And uh, so I just, uh, yeah, we, I really lucked out. Um, and we've been working together ever since. Right on, man. Did, um... George, didn't you tell us off air, haha, that um, you were you were hoping for a bigger project when David had uh, contacted you? Yeah, um, at at that point in my SCAD career, I was kind of um, I was starting to feel a little uh, like depressed, like for you know, just for lack of like a more eloquent term, like yeah, I was just I was feeling depressed because um, even though I felt like the stuff I was making was was good. I was wondering if anyone would ever be interested in publishing any of it. Um, a lot of the stuff I was making was like, okay, well, let me try this. Let me try this thing. But you know, does this have mainstream appeal? And a lot of the, like a a lot of my friends that were leaving SCAD with, with book deals, like they had already, like they had either had them like well before they were graduating or they had them like already sort of securely in hand. And so I was leaving school and being very like, well, what do I, what am I, what do I do now? Like the structure of my life is now leaving and I have to figure out what I'm doing. And I'm not like, I had sort of lost a lot of confidence in myself. And, um, yeah, that's when David emailed me and I would like, it sort of like, it was, it was sort of like a, like a, I'm trying to think of like a movie where this happens. It was, it was, yeah, it was kind of like a lifeline, you know, like we're just like, like, not that I was like in any sort of danger, but just sort of like, oh, like there is a person who like is who wants to work with me, and it was sort of like, you know, I, like I answered that email with almost like tears in my eyes, just like, oh man, somebody wants to work with me. All right, okay, like yeah, all right, cool. Like it sort of re revitalized me. Yeah, kind of re- reaffirming the dream. Yeah, because yeah, like especially when like you like anyone who just listened to me prattle on about the comics I made, you know, like. That might sound cool, but you know, no, no one, no one necessarily wants to hire a person like that, you know. There, and so like, I was like, all right, well, I guess I'll just be making comics for myself forever. But, but yeah, so Dave, David sort of gave me 
like sort of some some faith in not only myself but also in like the greater comics like sort of uh, readership and and industry that oh no like people do want different takes on stuff and you know you'll you you have a voice and people do want to hear it so it was yeah it was it was nice now everybody wants to hear that yeah. I certainly do yeah. me too yeah mm-hmm. and it it can be hard because like with comics like there's so many comics that come out you know like you know how does how do all of them get the love that they that they deserve you know yes. Yeah, and indeed, and, we know a little something about that. <laughs> yeah, and, and when you look at that, it can be like, especially when you're like at the edge of that ocean and you're trying to find like a place for you to get in the water, but there's like there's all these bigger fish and sharks and stuff like swimming around. You're just like, oh man, I'm gonna get gobbled up, or I'm gonna right. or I'm gonna get knocked onto the onto the beach. Like, I mean, how many people who how many people working in comics like have been doing so for more than ten years, like? It's it, it can be kind of like oh like are these writers still writing are these artists still drawing you know like it's it's a hard industry to get into but yeah like thankful thankfully with with Spencer and Locke like David gave me a, a way in that was pretty fun. Hmm. It's my pleasure. Go David, Team David. Yeah. It's my pleasure, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> You're the beneath my wings too. Aww. 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 <laughs> All right. Is that our song? So. Speaking, no, it's probably not. Yeah. Speaking of, I have like a thousand songs going in my head right now. Uh, I, I always have music going in my head. Don't mind me. Now, talking about the lead up to the book, and uh, George, you spoke a little bit about like what it takes to have your book noticed. Um, surprise question for you, David. I've seen you pounding the digital pavement over the past several weeks in the lead up to Spencer and Locke Volume 2, Number 1, mm-hmm. on shelves April 24th. Pre-order it. Uh, and <laughs> so my question, I guess for the both of you, but David, if you want to answer first, like I see you doing podcasts. I see you doing written interviews that people have either transcribed or, or you've sent in answers to people's questions. All Like the tweeting, all of this stuff. Can you take us through like, a normal day of like launching your, your <laughs> relaunching your new book. Oh, like I, you I, said something about having to contact like 350 comic book shops. Yeah. I'm, I'm closer what? to right now. Um, and, and, and I've just been calling stores individually. Um, you know, it's, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's like a frightening numbers game. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it takes a lot to get noticed in this business. And, you know, look, I, I, I have no illusions. Uh, you know, I, nobody knows, nobody knew who I was. Uh, and, you know, we're working with a smaller publisher. Uh, Action Lab is a wonderful publisher, but, you know, it, it doesn't have the uh, kind of market penetration of an image or or a boom or, or an aftershock. And uh, right. so the, the, the way you overcome that is um, you, you take the personal approach. I, I, I try to channel my inner Stan Lee a little bit. Stan, uh, Stan was uh, never allergic to self-promotion and not in a way that's, oh, look at me, look at me, but just saying, look at the product that we've put together. Um, I think, I, you know, my, my mother always tells me that I, I, I could have had a career as a salesman, but I, I don't agree because I can only sell the stuff I believe in. And so I believe in Spencer and Locke and Spencer and Locke too with every fiber of my being. Um, that's the, the plus side of coming at it from a critic's perspective is I've already looked at this in a way that I would have already uh, uh, critiqued it. 
And we've been able to sort of, uh, I've been able to fix everything I would have critiqued before we ever put it into production. So, um, you know, a day in the life for me, um, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's reaching out, you know, it's anytime you see a, a new site, you know, uh, reaching out, introducing yourself saying, Hey, you know, we've got a book, it's called Spencer and Locke. Uh, it's what if Calvin and Hobbes grew up in Sin City. And, uh, you know, can we talk a little bit about this? And that sort of approach, I mean, that extends to whether, you know, you're talking with a news outlet or whether, you know, uh, we're talking with a podcast like you guys or whether we're calling up the 400th store. Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, just putting yourself out there. I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions in comics and in, in creative industries as a whole is um, – they, you know, people think, oh, if I put out a good product, the market will be there. And no, that's not it. That works. You know, I, my my last full time day job before I I, I, I went full freelance was uh, I worked at CBS, uh, the 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 uh, television network, and I worked with their publicity department. And you would not believe the amount of legwork that would go into. Uh, you know, for people to know that the Big Bang Theory is a show, you know, or uh, and that's one of the most popular shows in the country, believe it or not. Um, you know, there's a lot of legwork that goes into, hey, we've got this product. Here it is. Take a look. And so that's kind of that's that's been the thing that's been kind of consuming my every waking moment since we hit previews. And it will be the case until our final order cutoff gets uh, completed. And then, you know, I'll get to do a, 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 a truncated version of the cycle again next month and the next month until the trade comes out. Um, mm. And, you know, it's it's a time-consuming process. It's uh, I was talking with another writer about this earlier today, which is it's sort of all the work besides the work. Um, it's the infrastructure that you have to lay down in order to support the work. And, um, you know, it's, it's a nonstop hustle. I, I mean... I, I actually owe, and I'll give I'll give him a shout out because he's 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 a he's a great dude. Hoyt Silva, uh, he he's an artist, and uh, I met him when we first announced Spencer and Locke. Um, he uh, was going to be doing a book at Action Lab, and they had announced it at the same time as, as us. And we sat next to one another at New York Comic Con, and you got to keep in mind, I had ju- we had just announced this book. Nobody knew who I was. Nobody, you know, we had no track record, no reviews, uh, so, to, uh, so to speak. We had literally announced the book 24 hours before. And all we had <laughs> were $10 New York Comic Con exclusive variants for this book. A book that no one's ever heard of from creators they've never heard of with no track record for $10. So you, 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 I was significantly underdressed for this con. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> so I... So I'm sitting there and I'm terrified because I've never been on this side of the table. I don't know how to do this. I barely, you know, we've, I've spent all this time putting the book together, but I couldn't really tell you how to sell it. And I watched Hoyt just every time that somebody would come up, he'd look him in the eye, he'd greet them, he'd say, hey, how you doing? You enjoying the con? Let me tell you about my book. And um, that was huge. Uh, I, I, I owe Hoyt a lot because I just kind of watched him and I said, oh, okay, that's how you do it. And you just kind of got to get out of your shell and just not be afraid to reach out. Um, because I think there's a lot of people out there 
who want cool content and want cool stories that make them feel things. Um, but, you know, they're not going to go out and, and give you a shot. That's not their job. Your job as the creator is to offer them something that they, they won't, they, they can't refuse. Um, and, <laughs> you know, I've sort of built up my, my, my kit as it were, uh, whether it's, you know, for cons or it's for sending emails out for press or for sending emails out to stores and calling them one by one by one by one. Um, and, uh, but, but the, 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 the heart of, of what I'm, I'm saying is it's just outreach. Um, I, I guarantee that nobody's gonna be mad at you for, you know, taking your shot, um, for saying, Hey, are you a fan of Calvin and Hobbes? Let me introduce you to your new favorite comic. It's called Spencer and Locke. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I have said that so many times. The words have kind of lost meaning to me. No, um, no, dude. Let me tell you something really quick. I'm going to interrupt you for yeah, a minute. Yeah. Those words have power. You both, Your team has one of the best one-liner elevator pitches for a comic book I've ever encountered. I was talking to my coworker, Alex, the other day about yeah. a couple of different books. And I told them that we were going to be sitting down with you guys. He's like, oh, what's their book like? And I gave them the Calvin and Hobbes grew up in Sin City. And he's just like, where can I buy it? Well, and, and he, uh, he bought it. It's like it's like saying the same word over and over and over again until it like loses meaning. And it sounds like a nonsense word to you. Uh, after you've called 400 sh- stores in like three days, that's you, you're kind of just curled up in the corner, just reciting your own high concept for a while. I wouldn't want to make 400 uh, phone calls to anybody mm-hmm. in three days. And <laughs> like, you know what? Like, I, I will say, you, the the, the re, you get positive reinforcement from from reaching out, and that's the cool thing that I think people don't realize. It's on the, it's a, sort of the other side of the equation. I can't tell you how many retailers have been really amazing, even when nobody knew who we were. They were so excited um, that that uh, a re- that a, a creator would call them and would reach out to them and sort of you know have a pitch that was very easy for them to understand. And you know I, I'm I'm a big believer. I you know our our retailer partners. I show them the first issue. I should I send them the whole thing because that's how much I believe in our product. Um, you know I this is the benefit of working in creator owned is I don't work in anything I don't believe in a hundred percent. And right. that's the benefit I get to be in at this stage in my career is I don't have to make compromises. I don't want to make compromises. And so I get to, I feel a hundred percent confident in everything I'm selling. Um, because I know that between me and the people that I've surrounded myself with my creative team, um, this, this book is of professional quality. And not only that, I think it, 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 it stands above a lot of, uh, of its competitors on the shelf. Um, and so, you know, we've had a lot of uh, retailers give us so much positive feedback about that. And um, I think that's sort of the way you kind of make yourself stand out is, you know, it's a crowded marketplace out there. But I think a lot of places get overlooked and a lot of people are not, you know, you would think everyone's getting hit up all the time, 24-7. And I don't think that's the case, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and I think if you can sort of just reach out and be cool and say here's my product here's why it's cool you know i think you get a lot of you get a a lot of mileage out of that no i I can confirm that actually from working on the retail side i worked in a um comic book store for a long time uh we love that like show us what you got we'll 
gladly sell it. If it's good, you know what I mean? If you're going to give it to us and, and you're going to let us read it, we will gladly sell your product. And it helps us sell your product too. That's the other thing. Like if I get to read, you know, that book before it comes out, I can sell it before it came out. And I would do that often. Um, you know, we had a, a couple creators. We had a couple people that self-published that came in and sold their stuff. And we were like, yeah, we'll put it on the shelves. No problem. You um, know, the, so. The advantage we have is creator-owned that, say, Marvel and DC don't at this point is, you know, Marvel and DC, they're, they're shipping in an accelerated timetable. They're doing, you know, bi-weekly shipping. And so, you know, the books are coming in, like, right at the last minute, which, of course, like, they're working on twice as many books per year. And so they don't have that opportunity to sort of uh, hand sell and sort of finesse and say, here's the whole book for you to read. Um, you know, they're just trying to get the trains on time. And... Uh, that's the advantage that we have as creator-owned is, especially working with Action Lab, uh, you know, I think it's really admirable. They don't want to solicit anything until the whole series, or at least the first four issues, are in the can. Um, and so that gives us a lot of runway to be able to say, the product's done. Here it is. Um, you know, like, first taste is free. Uh, you know, and uh, <laughs> that, that, I think, I think... It's that kind of agility um, that we're able to have that's sort of the big 18-wheelers of the big two. They don't have that maneuverability, and rightly so. They're a bigger operation that's operating at a much greater speed. And we're sort of the, you know, the scrappy little guys who can kind of you know, fit in the gaps there. Hmm. It's, a good or, it's a good origin story, man. It's, good, uh, it's a good underdog yeah. story you got, you got brewing there. All right. So speaking of releases and promotions, uh, you both have volume two of Spencer and Locke hitting shelves. The first issue hits April 24th. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the journey uh, from volume one to volume two? Like, what do you if if volume one is Calvin and Hobbes grew up in Sin City, what is volume two? So volume two, if, if, if Spencer and Locke was what if Calvin and Hobbes grew up in Sin City, uh, Spencer and Locke two is hard-boiled Calvin and Hobbes versus hardcore Beetle Bailey. Uh, we're taking the fables approach with it. Uh, no comic strip is safe. So uh, we've got Detective Locke and his uh, seven-foot-tall imaginary talking panther Spencer, and we're pitting them against uh, Roach Riley, the sole survivor <laughs> of Platoon Overseas. Uh, who has come back on a mission of, uh, of violence and vengeance. Um, you know, he's, he's seen some things over there that have kind of uh, uh, twisted him in a way. And now he's got some very strange philosophies on pain and suffering. And he's looking to sort of share the good word with as many people as possible. Um, it's kind of our Empire Strikes Back or our Dark Knight. Um, I don't invoke either of those in vain, I promise. Uh, but it's kind of, you know, we're expanding our universe um, uh, before we kind of blow everything up. <laughs> hmm? um, George. Oh, Bob, did you have a question? Nope. No. Oh, OK. <laughs> uh, George, what was I going to ask you? I want to ask you about uh, designing characters for the book. Obviously, uh, Calvin and Hobbes is a big inspiration, but what else? Uh, compelled you to design the characters the way that you do? And did you have alternate designs that you almost used when you were creating the book? Either first arc or second arc, your choice. Okay. Um, so as far as the character design stuff goes, I know that um, at at the beginning, 
when when David first sent me like the character design or the character sort of descriptions and stuff like um and i i think we've talked about this before is that like originally the physiques of spencer and Locke were inverted where it was uh Locke was more the the big bruiser type and spencer was like the more like sort of wiry kind of like uh like 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 smaller uh vert like the yeah the smaller of the two and um i ended up i i felt that uh like from from like a thematic standpoint it might be better to have uh, Spencer be the larger one, especially because it would create this, um, like this, this sort of like dramatic irony. I think for the readers, where like, uh, you know, they're as as they're going in to areas and like Locke thinks that he has this like big hulking panther. Like he's like, oh, I've got a tank at my back. Like they're kind of, it's like, oh, dude, you you don't even know, no one's there, kind of thing. Like, but also. Um, I think that as a as a character, Spencer sort of represents everything, like all of Locke's good points, sort of in the same way that like in Calvin and Hobbes, like while Locke is very he's very smart and but he's very cynical and like sort of his um his uh like Hobbes is the the more like the more affectionate, like the more emotional, the more like uh calm of the of the of the pair. And like I think that um to for for what Locke goes through and the reason why he created Spencer was he needed a protector. And so I wanted to sort of make that uh sort of like that, you know, like that feeling of like, oh, like because Locke himself is like he's not a big dude, especially when you compare him to to Roach, like in, in volume two, like um so like if if he was going to create a a a creature to protect him, it would be something large. It would be something something um imposing visually uh the only thing is he just doesn't know that anyone can't really see him but um but uh i i remember um the as far as like the design stuff goes oh the the button eye i wanted spencer to have um like some sort of uh damage on him because like you, you don't go through what Locke did and not and you know and your your um imaginary friend not also have his own scars and I also wanted to be sure that when people were reading the book, there was not really a question that Spencer was not really there or that he was a figment of Locke's imagination. So that's where the, the button eye comes from. It's like it, it's sort of the reflection of like if Locke, Spencer and Locke are, are looking at each other, it's the opposite eye that that Locke, you know, Locke has his um, over his right eye. He has that scar. Yeah. On Spencer, yeah. his left eye is missing, and it's a button. So that way, like, because I wanted him to be reflections of each other. What? Yeah, but but also, sorry, go ahead. Oh, okay, yeah, but but also to show, you know, like when people see the button eye, they immediately think, oh, this is a toy. This is a fabrication. You know, if he had just had like a scar or like a cool eye patch, like it would. The, sometimes people would open the book, and if they don't know what the concept is, they might forget that. Spencer is meant to be a, a toy. He's a, he's he's not really there. And so by giving him the button eye, I was able to sort of have this um, like this feeling of like, oh, you know, th this was a a quick replacement, probably done by Locke with like unsteady hands as a child. You know, that is still there, but you know, it, it clues people in that you know Spencer might not be like a like actually you know a real person. And so um, I think that was the 
at least as far as like the the modern day designs like that that was sort of the the big thing that i wanted to do um i think the the thing that most people notice when they look at the book is definitely the um the the change in art style um across, like and now that we have in volume two not only do we sort of have the art style changes for uh spencer and Locke's uh flashbacks but we also have the same thing for uh roach riley you know and both of those are sort of inspired by um mm -hmm. bill watterson and um and mort walker did, did i get his name right yes okay yes. all right i didn't want to just like say his name wrong and be like oh oh great oh i'm an idiot um but yeah so uh in creating those, I, I tried to metabolize those two art styles, you know, Beetle Bailey and Calvin and Hobbes, because ultimately I didn't want the book to feel like it was drawn by more than one person. I feel that sometimes books do that in order to have like, oh, here's a different art style. Um, yeah. But they, I guess they don't think that the one artist can do it or they don't feel comfortable doing it. And but it, it, it definitely it's like glaring. It's like it's like having like a bright pink door on like a blue car. Like it doesn't like these two things don't go together. But for what what we were doing, I wanted it to always feel that like this book was drawn by the same person. That these worlds feel like even though they're separated by different art styles, that they belong in the same home. And um, I also I wanted to I wanted to also find ways to interpret like. Um, like I, I feel that like our flashbacks, the lock uh, for for Spencer and Locke, um, Locke's flashbacks. Like you could almost imagine that that's how he viewed his life as as a kid. You know, it's it's not even so much like oh we're calling back to this specific comic. Like you could believe that oh you know this is this is the memory of of a person who had a very traumatic childhood. Like there was this innocence there which I feel like the art style represents, but you know, the graphicness of what happened to him, like it definitely there, you know, there's a gut punch there because you don't expect, you know, something that looks that like that cartoony and QC to have that level of um, like, 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 ho like a sort of like horrible violence and stuff happening in there. And so like, it's the same thing with, um, with Roach Riley, like with his with his flashbacks, I feel like um, I wanted them to feel definitely, especially because he was kind of a, you know, just like Beetle Bailey, he was like a like lax, like you know, he was a slacker, you know, and so the art style that you see there sort of reflects like his the way he saw the world. It's like, oh, there's no real problem, you know, there's no real sense of like urgency or danger, and then everything changes. And right, then, until there is yeah and then and then you have the like these two these two histories of these characters like collapsing into this sort of darker more detailed gritty world that is more of a reflection of like what their the world really is and like what their surroundings are and so it is i guess like for spence first spencer and Locke and roach riley both like their flashbacks are almost like their um their broken promises of like what life is supposed to be and then it becomes like most crime stories, dirty and dark and bloody and dingy. Um, but uh, yeah, oh. what he said. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my god, we can talk to you guys forever. Mm -hmm. All right, David. Yeah. In another lifetime, we talked to you about how both you and George and your team strived to create more diversity and representation in this new arc. Do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, what made you decide well, to do that and, and how you've gone about doing that in the second arc? 
So something that, that George and I talked about, we actually talked about this for our first arc. And, you know, part of the problem with our first arc, and I love our first arc. It's not me trying to, 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 to diminish it in any way. But it was so focused on Locke and his immediate family and sort of this kind of dirty, gringy, gritty world that they lived in um, that we kind of poxed ourselves in in terms of a lot of the, the, the representation that we would have had in there would have been like really bad representation. It would have been like leaning into terrible stereotypes. And, you know, uh, it, it would not have been a good it would not have been good for this book uh, or, or for any of us, really. Um, but that was something I really wanted to correct uh, a little in volume two. And so, um, you know, we're, we're expanding our cast and that gives us a little bit more uh, wiggle room in terms of having, you know, uh, more women and more people of color in our series. Uh, uh, Locke's new love interest, uh, Melinda Mercury, is really, I think, an important character for, for that reason. And more is, uh, you know, she's uh, our riff on Brenda Starr. Uh, reporter and you know the idea of having a hard-boiled cop dating a reporter that sounds like a terrible idea for a lot of reasons um but i kind of like that idea of having they're both running kind of parallel tracks for the same investigation um you know they sort of have the same um you know skill set that they're using in very different ways and i thought just you know having a prominent woman of color in our series was really important um, you know, and having having one who's not, you know, uh, an alcoholic or not a drug dealer or not, you know, uh, 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 you know, a, a sexual predator or anything like that. But, you know, that, you know, sort of having like actual positive representation in our book, I thought was important. Um, mm-hmm. And also Locke's daughter, Hero, who she's kind of the character I was most concerned about for our first arc. I didn't know how people would take it. Um you know, Spencer and Locke, Locke grew up in this horribly abusive upbringing, this really traumatic childhood. And that's why he still carries his imaginary friend with him as an adult. That's sort of his coping mechanism. Um, but Hero is kind of what could have been uh, in, a, in another lifetime, uh, you know, without all the heartbreak and without all the pain and scars. And so, you know, she's a very sort of powerful influence on both Locke and Spencer. Uh, you know, they're both determined to sort of keep her uh keep her innocence intact um but you know i wanted you know i was really nervous to see how people would react to her in her first arc and i was i was really excited when people started like tweeting at us saying yeah hero she's awesome and so we wanted to expand her role in in in, uh, volume two so uh she's kind of graduating from being uh just the hostage in in this series she's kind of got a lot more agency and a lot more direction and a lot more impact on the plot um you know, it's kind of fun to see how she and Locke, how Hero and Locke really kind of play off each other and inspire each other to kind of try to step up their game. And, um, you know, I keep saying that Spencer and Locke, you know, their dynamic, you know, of course, they're the headliners, their names are in the title, their relationship is the engine of our story. But I kind of think of Hero as kind of like the, 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 the beating heart of the series. And I've said, you know, Roach is, was my favorite character to write in this arc. You know, he's got all the best one-liners. He's got all the, you know, coolest moments. Um, but Hero was kind of a close second for me. Um, she really gets to step up in a big way in this series, and uh, I think I think fans of her are really going to like her uh, her journey uh, in this second. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> mm-hmm. 
All right, all right, before we give something away. Um, George, where uh, where were you at in the design of Hero? Did you have somebody in mind that you based the character on, or was that an entirely, like, what would this character's daughter look like scenario for you? Um, I think based on the description, I... Um... I, I I know that David said that he wanted her to have like wild hair, you know, like sort sort of like a a, a not, like a nice sort of uh yeah, just like like the child of like of Locke whose hair is kind of um, unkempt and and wild and represents his character, and then um, and Sophie whose hair was more proper, you know, was more reserved, and um I didn't really have a. Uh, a person that I was really basing her off of. Um, I, I, I think what, what I, what I was most wanting to just capture with, with, with her is just like, there, there is like a, um, that like there. Uh, so I'm, I, 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 I always wanted her to feel like, um, like she is capable at any point of like escaping or fighting back, you know, like there's a, there's like sort of like a wild child kind of look to her. Like, um, uh, th- this is going to be like a, so, uh, I'm playing the new resident evil game and it, yes, so mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it, it's a great <laughs> game. And like, I'm playing through Claire's scenario and Sherry, yep. Sherry in that, and the way they design Sherry, her body language and the way she moves around and the way she looks is she's very, very passive. And you can really tell that this was the product of like a, an abusive upbringing or like a neglectful upbringing. Like she's a, you can tell that she's almost afraid to even make a sound. Like I didn't mm-hmm. want hero to be like that. I wanted hero to at any point, like in the, like in the first volume, she's going to bite that dude's hand and she's going to escape into the shadows. You know, she's going to try to get away at any point because, you know, she is, um, yeah, I, I wanted her to be like her, her, her dad's daughter, you know, somebody who is, you know, uh, a fighter. And I, I wanted that to be present, like no matter what. Very cool, man. I dig it. Oh, thank you. All right. So, uh, I know that you're not allowed to talk about it, yeah. but I don't want the whole interview to go by without at least cluing listeners into what's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you give us a quick update on the business with the Spencer and Locke movie? Yeah. Well, I can't, so I can't take too much publicly, uh, at <laughs> You know, we've had some really cool conversations about it with some really talented people. Um, I'm based in Hollywood, so I've, I've sort of been on the ground floor of things. I, you know, I, re- I wrote, for example, our pitch document that we were showing to, uh, you know, directors and writers and, and actors and the like. Um, and that was kind of a cool, I, you know, did kind of a graphic design take on it. I, I incorporated, you know, it was, it was basically an illustrated pitch document, um, you know, utilizing all of George's art. Um, from across the series and being able to say, here's our characters and here's where they come from and here's where they're going and here's what our plans are, you know, beyond the first arc. Um, and so it's really encouraging to see how many people have been so excited about our series out here. Um, and, you know, while I can't, I can't say too much yet about sort of, uh, you know, specific details, um, I'm hoping we'll be able to change that soon. Um, you know, we, we had, uh, some, some cool meetings, uh, I want to say it was a week or so ago. Um, so, you know, fingers crossed, we'll be able to tell you guys about all of that soon, but I think 2019 will be a good year for our boys, just both on screen and on the page. 
Well, but... alrighty then. If that's mm-hmm. not uh, enticing, I don't know what is. <laughs> All right, uh, David. Before we go, can you give us an update on Grand Theft Astro that you're working on with Jordi Perez? Yeah, uh, you know it's very early on in the process. We actually don't have a, a set release date just yet but it's coming together really nicely i mean um you know i haven't had a chance to talk about it with a lot of people but it's very much it's sort of uh back to the future meets fast and the furious um it's uh, a a you win these pitches man yeah it's it's a it's sort of a sci-fi time travel space heist um it's about it's set you know in the future where um you know, if people would race, you know, horses and buggies and cars, of course, people would race spaceships as well. And so it's, uh, you know, Grand Theft Astro is the story of a star chaser named Hakeem Henriksen, uh, who uh, he accidentally tears open a wormhole during a race and he winds up popping out seven years into the future. And he finds out that all of his uh, immediate friends and family and sort of the world around him, uh, they've all changed really dramatically uh, in his wake. And so this is going to be about a guy who has to figure out uh, how he can move on um, with, you know, in a time that's kind of left him behind. So he's going to team up with his former younger brother, who's now his older brother, um, and has uh, graduated, become a, a street criminal in his own right. And they're going to have to go on a pretty high speed, high stakes heist uh, if he ever hopes to get back to his home era. So it's a. Uh, it's really cool. I'm very excited with how it's come together. You know, I'm still uh, finishing up the scripts now, but um, you know, and Jordy is uh, hard at work wrapping up on uh, Queen of Bad Dreams over at Vault. Mm. Uh, but I can tell you, you know, uh, Jordy's really excited. I'm really excited. Uh, the work he's been turning out has been really exciting and really kinetic and really fun. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm just I'm I'm really pumped. Um, I, I'm fingers crossed. It hopefully will be out sometime next year. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's coming together nicely. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. Grand Theft Astro, everybody. Remember that. Add it to your pull list. Yeah. Pre-order it. (laughs) Speaking of pre-orders, uh, do you want to give everybody a quick shout about, uh, Spencer and Locke? Are the, the polls closed to pre-order your uh, copy of number one? You can, no, you can still do it. Um, you just call your local comic shop or visit your local comic shop. You can. Pre-order Spencer and Lock 2, number one, with the pre-order code FEB191309. That's for uh, George's main cover. Uh, FEB191310 for our orange and teal variant by Mon House. And FEB191311 for Joe Mulvey's American flag variant. Uh, and honestly, like all three of these guys have really been just like one-upping each other. I mean, it's been amazing to watch them kind of raise the bar. And uh, so you can't go wrong with any of these covers. You can't go wrong with all three of these covers. There but, you go. Uh, the, the, the thing that I try to impress upon our readers is, if anything, I think pre-orders for Spencer and Lock 2 are actually more critical than Volume 1. Um, George and I, we have a plan for these characters. And I think once people read Volume 2, they're going to want to know uh, what happens in Volume 3. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a plan. And you're not going to want to miss it. And so, uh, if, basically, if you want a Volume 3, pre-ordering Volume 2 is the absolute best way to get there because Action Lab has told us as long as our sales are not in the toilet, they would be game for it. So uh, please don't make our sales be in the toilet. <laughs> There's, the- <laughs> There's a pitch for you. Yes. Please save us from the toilet. All right. Well, now you have no excuse. You know the numbers. Do the thing. And you can follow- All right, gentlemen. 
<laughs> I think that'll about do it. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners where they can follow you online and get all the latest updates on your various projects? Sure. You can follow uh, Spencer and Locke is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. It's just Spencer and Locke. It's one word. The word and is spelled out. It is not an ampersand. And then you can follow me on Twitter. It's just Pepos D. It's my uh, last name and first initial. And um, all right, George, how about you? Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, uh, sorry. Um, you can find me on most on like Facebook. Well, and I don't really use Facebook, uh, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, all at uh, Jorge Santiago Jr. That's J-O-R-G-E-S-A-N-T-I-A-G-O-J-R. Uh, that's also my website if you go to that plus.com you can find uh like a blogs where i post up like my, my like the newest things i'm working on or any any fun news in my neck of the woods um and yeah all right well there you have it thank you so much gentlemen for joining us be sure to grab yourself a copy of spencer and Locke volume one which is in stores now and don't forget to add uh, Spencer and Locke, number one, volume two, to your uh, pull list. Hit stores April 24th. I lost the thread there right at the end. <laughs> it's all right. We're going to recoup. Here we go. Whoop. Uh, we're going to do a quick listener question, and then we Yay. need to bounce because it is late. All right. Oh, God, um, it's late. <laughs> yeah, it's really late, especially for you. What time is it? It is 2.39 a.m. Oh, Jesus. Okay, we need to we need to, to go through this. Um, so this question comes from Matthew Seddon. I was reorganizing my books this week, and I came across the Doctor Strange trade paperback that I was fortunate enough to get signed by Greg Pak uh, at my local comic shop. Gosh, comics in London in 2017. He was an extremely nice guy, had a lot of time for everyone in attendance, and even sketched Stephen Strange uh, for me as we spoke about Hercules and Amadeus Cho. After he finished sketching, he pauses for a brief moment and says, That, my friend, is why they only pay me to write. <laughs> so I thought of a question. Thank you very much for the story, uh, Matthew. So I thought of a question that could, uh, you, could, you could perhaps use on the podcast. What has been your favorite interaction with a comic book creator? Uh, so I'll go first, super quick. Um, I give the same answer every time. Um, but up front, I just want to say that we have had a lot of incredible yes. creators come through on this show. Uh, you will hear some of them momentarily. And uh, I just want to say that we've we've had so many laughs, so many amazing conversations. We've learned a lot from all of these great people that have given us their time and have been here to promote their stuff or sometimes just to hang out. So um, I really dig so, so many of those experiences as far as in-person stuff. And I can only pick one. So if we've interacted or hung out or whatever and I don't pick you, it's nothing personal. Um <laughs> But the one ring that rules them all is J.P. Ahonen, uh, creator of Beelzebub's and Sing No Evil. He and I were born, we found out, nine minutes apart from one another on the same day in different parts of the world. And we met up at New York City Comic Con to talk about Sing No Evil. I read it and I was a huge fan and saw he was going to be at the show. And we turned our meeting into like a two, two and a half hour hangout uh, over some beers and food 
at a at a pub in New York City, and we had the entire back patio to ourselves. And I just left the recorder on, and we just chilled the whole time, and we hit it off, and we've been super friends ever since. Um, the Beelzebub's graphic novel is coming out soon. Yours truly has a quote on the back of it. Um, it was lovely of JP to uh, include that again. And um, yeah, he's just, he's hes the real deal. He's a genuine, genuine article. Um, we talk all the time. He's uh, in the midst of creating some tattoo artwork for Bronwyn and I. Ooh. We've been talking about that. Um, he's got lots of stuff going on with the band and everything, creating music videos, Beelzebub's is blowing up and I'm just, I'm so thrilled to see all of that happening for him. But I mean, just as like a real connection, real deal, not even an interview, but just like an experience with a creator, um, between the atmosphere and the talk that we had and connecting on music and comic book tastes and stuff like that um it was just the best and it's it's my single favorite uh experience that i've had with a creator um in comics so um sarah why don't you tell us uh yours okay um my first one is really simple but effective i was at london super comic con in 2013 i was helping a friend set their stand up um and george perez held a door open for me and i just kind of stood there and i was like oh my god you're george perez and he was so sweet about it and he just kind of stood there chatting to me for a couple of minutes but it was set up day so like he didn't have to talk to me i wasn't buying anything i wasn't getting a sketch from him he was just really lovely and he held the door and he was like do you want me to carry that box for you i'm like no it's okay because you're george perez um and and also paul connell who wrote my favorite bat book ever batman night and square go and read it everybody um i fangirled all over him at kapow in 2012 and he just stood there and accepted it and was super nice and gave me a big hug and said he liked my cosplay so that was really nice of him um and <coughs> sorry i'm really losing my voice um Kelly Sue DeConnick, as everybody knows, is a legend, and she very kindly came on to the Ladies of Valhalla podcast, and basically basically just interviewed Amy King, A.S. King, for us, and Jess Bromwell and I just sat there going, these these are two of our favourite creators, and they're just chatting, and we're allowed to listen. That was Um, the most amazing episode. (laughs) I'm like giddy just... Yeah, it was the highlight of last year for me. Um, it's probably going to be the highlight of this year, and it didn't even happen this year. No, you're, you're coming to visit in like a month and a half. That will be the highlight. Oh we're, going to, we're going to see Metric in July talk, like 15 minutes away from the house. We're going to see Avengers Endgame together. We got this. Hold on, hold on. I'm just getting my little countdown timer. 69 days. Oh 69 yeah. days, yeah. There you go. <laughs> So I just have to throw that one in there. So Fantastic. yeah, there we go. That's my three. All right. Uh, I know Jess. I was really loud one, but <laughs> well, Jess, do you have a favorite creator uh, experience? Sure. And I, I, you know, Sarah's last one was also on my list because it happened to both of us, and it was very exciting and one of the most interesting experiences I've ever had. Um, I am also very spoiled because I worked at the comic book store, so we had a bunch of cool people come in, and I got to meet you know a bunch of cool people there. Um, but one of my favorites was Frank Barbary. He wrote um, White Suits, Broken World, Five Ghosts, Violent yeah. Love. Um, was probably one of the coolest people I've ever met. 
came there, signed a whole bunch of books, talked to everybody, and then came out to dinner with us. But, like, while we were there, like, I didn't realize, like, he was a graphic designer before he did it, and he was setting type for comic books. And we, me and him just went through, like, books and, like, went, like, this is a terrible, this is, this is really not a good logo for this. This is not typesetter, you know? And it was just a really fun time, and he was such an awesome guy. And to go through that was just lovely. Um, when Scott Schneider came to uh, the comic book store he was awesome we drank beers with him in the back of the store marguerite bennett <laughs> marguerite bennett um she um crashed the party and just showed up nice <laughs> while scott snyder was there with champagne okay it was she sat on the floor and signed books while scott snyder sat there drank beers with us signed books talked to everybody that was pretty awesome um and then i've gotten the chance to talk to west craig uh, he's a bunch of times at Comic-Con and he's a lovely individual as well. And he's drawn a little thing in our, our, our big, um, what you call compendium of, of deadly class. And, uh, yeah. Oh, and one time, uh, when I got to go, sorry, <laughs> I when I got to go, yeah. one more, one more thing. Cause I, like I said, I was, I was a little spoiled. Um, I got to go to the, um, <clears throat> skybound breakfast before New York city Comic-Con and uh, we yes. sat there uh, like face to face with Robert Kirkman and just like he just like shot the shit like he was just like talking he just like kind of like you know he was hanging out he answered any questions for us he was like really cool um, that 25 cent issue like that came out like was a result of like that that sitting there it was it was awesome I have like a really cheesy picture of me looking just like a fangirl with like red cheeks and like the biggest <laughs> smile on my face um, so yeah yeah lovely lovely experience lovely guy really nice actually <laughs> Super lovely, <laughs> lovely indeed. How about you, Bob? Oh, we got about four days. Um, <laughs> I'll, 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 right about I'll, four I'll, minutes. Okay. Uh, separating as as we're talking about, you know, on air and in person. On air, certainly talking to Jen and Sylvia Saska has been just an absolute blast. And then the emails that have come afterwards. Uh, getting to speak to Trina Robbins, who's a hero, yes. and, and having, having yeah. Uh, she's been on a couple of times now and is absolutely one of our favorites. Uh, in person, uh, I, I met Marguerite Bennett at Fourth World Comics when she was so new at this. She had two books out and a handwritten business card that I still have. <laughs> and she was just so absolutely lovely and continues to be so her little bowl of candy at her table when you when you go there and, and, and so on. Uh Certainly, Kristen Gudzuck and Jeremy Whitley, the last show where we actually came, they were at the Algonquin with us. Many years ago, over at Long Island Comics, he used to have events back in the day, and going out for Chinese food with Walt Simonson was a blast. Nice. <laughs> While he was sketching things. He's so lovely. Yes, he was sketching things on the on the, the tablecloths. It's just, yeah, but see, this is what we're going to do in the next issue of Thought. We're going to do this. It's like, Walt, you know, you may want to bring that home. But yes, absolutely lovely. Um, two slightly longer stories. One's w with Kelly Sue. A couple of years back at New York Comic Con, she wasn't coming to be a guest. At the last minute, they flew her in to do uh, Emerald City, do a, a panel about that. And we didn't think we were going to meet up at all, and it was near the end of a Saturday. And I walked over to Greg Rucker's table to get a copy of Black Magic signed because he was sick and going home and needed it for a gift for somebody. And so I'm standing there having him sign the book, and he's hacking up a lung or whatever. And who walks past is is Kelly Sue, who then walks over to the table and tells him, hey, you got to take care of this guy, Bob. He's a good fella. Aww. And then she was, she was about to head down to the uh, artist alley. 
She said, come on, let's go to Artist Alley. So we just wandered around Artist Alley and talked to other creators like Elsa Chartier, and we talked to Jeremy, and we were over here and over here. And all of a sudden, there's, there's this whole crowd following, including our folks. <laughs> we, have, we end up... How, how, Steve, are you there for this one? No. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. How many people do we have in the middle of the, of the aisle? I don't know, 15 or 20 people in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a symposium while Kelly Sue held court. That sounds about right. Yeah, uh, it, it was it was pretty amazing to to be part of that and watch that all happen. There, she was like the Pied Piper, just people followed. My all time favorite story it's Stan uh, at Icon, our local show here. I've told this story before, but it's too good not to tell. I had missed him at a New York City show. I had gotten my copy of FF One signed by Jack Kirby a couple of years before. And definitely had to have it. By the way, folks, it is this is not like the mile high copy. It's like the three miles underground copy. It's been read and enjoyed by a lot of people. Um, and so I, I made sure I was the first person on his line, and I took it out of the the, the folder. And he's sitting at a table, signing. And there are hundreds of people lined up, and I, I walk up, and, it, and it's open. And I went, hey, hey, that's the first one. That's great. That's where everything started. That's that's the best book we did. Yeah. Oh. Set it down from me, opens it up. And you got Jack to sign it too. That's great. Because he was he's the best partner a guy could have. He was a king of comics for a reason, and his name should come first once in a while. And it, <laughs> I, I, I'll be proud to, to sign this book. And he starts to hover over with his pen and he looks up at me and says, I hope I don't rip this, kid. Oh, <laughs> you know, no. you know, me, me too, Stan. Nah, <laughs> just, just just kidding. Just kidding. Come on over here and talk to me. He pulls me aside. I'm standing next to his... Well, he signs for other people. I'm standing next to Stan while he has a conversation with me, asking me about his characters. And I'm sure it was only five minutes, but it seemed like it was five hours, and I had a smile that lasted for weeks. How old were you when this happened? This is 1990 or something like that. Okay. So long enough ago that I wasn't a kid... Stan was what my age is now, basically. So he was in his early sixties, probably. But he had—he was—he was Stan. He was just on, and he just an amazing moment. Very cool. All right, there you have it. There are some of our favorite uh, creator stories. I'm sure there's there's tons. We could probably oh, fill an yeah. entire podcast. Yeah, I'm yeah, thinking of more as I'm sitting here. I'm like, oh, I'm oh. making notes for next time. I know. <laughs> I even have one or two bad ones, but I won't talk I have, about that. Yeah, I have some interesting <gasps> ones too, but I have interesting right. ones. <laughs> Let's go through our list. Let's talk about the books that we're looking forward to uh, this new comic book day. Sarah, what are you picking up? I am getting Blackbird number five from Sam Humphreys and Jen Bartel, Captain Marvel number two from Kelly Thompson and Carmen Canero, Dark Arc 14. Cullen Bunn and Juan Doe, House of Whispers number six from Nalo Hopkinson, Anake and Dominique Stanton, Murder Falcon number five oh, from Daniel Warren Thompson and Mike I'm so Pfeiffer. glad somebody else is reading Murder Falcon. Oh my God, it is so good. Um, is it that good? I'll pick it up. If it's that good, it's amazing. It's amazing. Have I haven't read it's it. I haven't so read it. I'll pick good. it up. Nobody believes me. Sarah I will believe you. Well, Sarah said it, so now it's true. So. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the last issue, oh, just kidding. Oh, the last issue that came out like delivered a serious gut punch it and did. really turned the story on its head and it was beautiful. It was Don't let don't let the the amazing title of that book fool you. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I interrupted. 
That's fine. The only other one I had was um, Wonder Woman 64 from G. Willow Wilson and Jesus Marino. Okay, well, I can't give you all of the creator names like <laughs> some nice. people. Some of us just don't want to be teachers' pet because we're new, okay? <laughs> yeah. We'll see how quickly this fades. Give me one more week. <laughs> um, Jess, do you have a list prepared or no? Um, no, I forgot about that. But, okay. you know, no, no, well, but you know. You're know. oh, just hanging out. You need to get a lightning round. Me, so. I didn't. I didn't. That's all right. Uh, we just love having you here. Bob, how about you? Sure. Also, Wonder Woman 64. Uh, in this one, Aphrodite needs a place to stay, so she decides to... Uh, stay with steve and diana and he is apparently not very happy about how what, what the goddess of love is in my house she's going to critique everything we do <laughs> it's like come on gee willow that's the way you do that and of course it is her final issue of ms marvel this week oh yeah yep yeah, so that's the thing uh thor number 10 war of the realms is coming got a new squirrel girl and that captain marvel and Betty Page has to save Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> you can't miss that. Those right. Betty Page books are lovely. I read them in trade and they are just so yes. fun. Absolutely. There's another one coming where uh, it's for later in the year. It's called Betty Page Unbound. And it's David Avalone again. There was a while back there was an issue where she was fighting off a Lovecraftian creature, Yog Sothoth himself. Mm. Apparently. It's sort of crisis on infinite Bettys where she's going to be scattered through time and be all sorts of other oddball things like space princesses and jungle girls and you name it, all because that dreaded Yog sothos has got his tentacles on stuff. You have me at space princesses. Okay. <laughs> all right. I'll read my list real quick. I'm also picking up goddess mode number three. The Mr. Miracle trade paperback collecting the whole story comes out tomorrow. Why? They're not launching this as a hardcover first. I don't know. And I'm very upset. Hmm. Is that the way DC usually does it? I can't remember. They used, they used to do hardcovers first for 25 bucks, and then six months after that, there would be trades. Well, yeah, they I failed the world. So <laughs> they're, uh, they're probably holding out for some kind of like absolute director's cut Mr. Miracle thing, which I will also buy. No, they will. Um, they will. Re, they, I'll tell you what they'll do. They're going to reprint it as they've been doing some other things as a black label collection. You watch. Yeah, mm. that's been their their thing, their go to lately. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I'm also going to check out Wonder Twins number one. Uh, I'm mm -hmm. also picking up Wonder Woman number sixty four, Blackbird number five, Criminal number two, Gideon Falls number eleven, Murder Falcon, uh, <laughs> Age of X Men next next gen number one. I'm just gonna continue to ride that wave. Uh, Captain Marvel, Ms. Marvel, Runaways number eighteen, Spider Gwen, Ghost Spider number five, and Unbeatable Squirrel Girl number forty one. I am I am on track. I am a fan. All right. Have you been, are you up to date with Ghost Spider? Nope. No? Okay. I wanted to I know. I read one issue, and I liked it 
thought it was a little hitchy, but I'm excited to re I'm excited to, to move forward with it and, and see more of it for sure. Yeah, I have them all. I buy them for Gwen because I buy mm-hmm. anything with the name Gwen in it. OK, so it's very because <laughs> listen, the kid just it, I just shell money out and the kid just gets whatever she wants. So mm-hmm. I, I have all of them. I have not touched them. So I was hoping you're going to say, yeah. yeah, they're great. And then I was like, um, I'll read well, them. <laughs> I mean, I, I read the first issue. I, I liked it. It's um the author is somebody that Bronwyn really loves. Like that was the. I was gonna get it anyway. Yes, it is. It is the uh, the author of every heart of doorway. Is it, it really? is Shona McGuire. Shona McGuire. Yeah, really? Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Is that yes. who's right? I had no idea. Subject yeah. of the latest episode so. of Ladies of Our Yeah, you can go. Hey. Hey. It came out last Friday. Yeah, got it in there. Yeah. Really, I had no idea. I had no clue who was writing it. I was literally just grabbing them off the shelf and putting them in a box. I'm the worst. <laughs> I, I believe she's fairly new at it, but still. Not, she really, yeah. the, her other books were fantastic. So now I'm definitely going to read it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, okay. So, and uh, last but not least, I want to say thank you again to David and George for joining us. And uh, be sure to go and check out Spencer and Locke. Seriously, it is worth your time, your money, and all the other things. Um, does anybody else have anything they want to say before we start jibber jabbering with the ending episode stuff? <laughs> no, we'll jibber jabber out. No, all right, all right. Sarah's got to go to bed. <laughs> We've reached the end of this week's edition of the Talking Comics podcast. As always, you can send us your comments or questions through our email podcast at talkingcomicbooks.com. We are also on Twitter at Talking Comics. Don't forget to check out TalkingComicBooks.com for reviews from our fantastic uh, list of contributors. I read the wrong thing. That's okay. Um, didn't we have a like best of article go up this week? Yes, we did. It's the Writer's Choice Awards. Indeed. So those folks who wrote pieces for the site were all invited to contribute. Sarah definitely did, and I did, and Chris put those up, and they... It's a lovely piece with some very interesting takes on the material. So check it out. Right on. Um, let's see here. Where are we going? Oh, don't forget to check out Talking Valiant, D&D Adventure, Bendis Assembled, and of course, the ladies of Valhalla, Woo. Bob. <laughs> Yay! We're going to listen to you. Bob Ryer at TalkingComicBooks.com. Sarah. You can find me all over the internet at Geek Country Lady. Jessica. I am at Jarska on all the things. And I am at dead underscore anchorus on both Twitter and Instagram. So for Bob. Watch for that polar vortex. <laughs> for Sarah. <laughs> Higher, further, faster, more. Aww. And Jessica. Congratulations to Burns the Dachshund for winning best in group, his hound group this week. Yay, Dachshund. <laughs> he didn't win all best right. in show, though. Aww. <laughs> I've been Steve Say. I also love dogs. Thank you for listening. (laughs) Be excellent to each other. And until next time on the Talking Comics Podcast, to be continued.